Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Besides the vaccine, they have them on a low-dose antibiotic all the time, and they're probably not telling them to use a probiotic. Oh, and, you know? and you're right. And that's why we see so many uh, emotional problems because if you can't get good nutrition to break down and feed the body, then the adrenals and thyroid get really messed up, and that regulates our metabolism, our emotion, and makes our hormones. So guess what? You come home, and your gut's screwed up. Your body hasn't been fed properly. Your emotional train wreck. And, of course, the VA is going to take care of that. Yeah, and the other thing is they... um... He said he caught KP duty one time, or for a while, and uh, they they were having a surf and turf dinner, and uh, as he was unwrapping the meat, he noticed it was stamped grade D, as in dog, uh, for prisoners and military only. That does not surprise me at all, and it's very... <laughs> It's very sad. You know, a lot of the things like that, if you'd have brought them up 20 years ago, people would have thought it was some silly conspiracy theory. But unfortunately, we're finding out today, especially in health and the foods and what's going on with the government, is that all these things are worse than we ever dreamed. Yeah, and they're uh, supposedly buying, uh, the military's buying the um, um, stuff from the Gulf of Mexico from those fishermen um, to keep them quiet, and uh, they're feeding it to our guys. So you know that's yeah, well, not helping. Well, is your son still in the Army, or has he gotten out? No, he, he got out, and uh, which I'm glad, because I tried every time he came for a reenlistment, I tried to talk him getting out because I knew that, you know, what they were doing, but, you know. Yeah. And What's he was, good... uh, he has a sister who's a chiropractor. And, um, you know, I've been telling him things for years. And and when I talked to him, I said, man, you don't want to go to the VA for every, anything because they're trying to take away the guns. And he said, yeah, that's what his sister told him, that when she has a patient come in, she is supposed to question them about do they have any guns in the home or something. And, oh, yeah, they, yeah, it's terrible. So, anyway, that's all I had, and I enjoy well, your show. And Well, thank you very lot. much, and I, I hope we can reach your son and help him because it's easy to turn this around if you don't let it go on too long, but the longer it goes on, the harder it is to fix. So, if he's interested yeah, now, in... Now, I think you have to uh, pretty much um, make your own... Um, you know, uh, fermented foods, because any time you get something that's been canned, it's, it's going to have been raised to high heat. 
You know, like you can't go out and buy sauerkraut unless it's, you know, you get it from somebody who's making it from home. Because if they put it in a can, you know they had to bring that up to high heat to uh, for the canning process. Well, there there are some out there uh, in jars, and they I think some of them actually come in from, like, Germany, and they don't do all that. But there are a lot of ways to make your own here, and you're right. You can do a lot of that. So there's a lot of things you can do to help him. If you need help, please call me at the office and uh, okay. get, him to, get him to listen to the show, and, uh, you know, we'll do what we can to help you. Okay. Thanks a lot, Doc. Bye. Well, thank you, Sharon. Have a nice evening, and thanks for listening. There, there's a perfect example of what happens so much when you do this, what we do in my field, is so many people have watched the commercials and been told by their doctors to take an antacid, to put them on Prilosec, Nexium, Tums. Uh, I had a young mother call me with a little girl. I don't even think she was two years old. And they had gone to the pediatrician's office, and the child was spitting up a little bit. So they convinced the mother that your child needs Nexium. Now, this is a two-year-old girl. I'd never even heard of that. And the mom calls me in tears that she said, Dr. Krupa, they put her on this medicine, and I can tell I'm her mom. It's, it's destroying her. It's making her sick. She's miserable. And I said, my God, why would they do that? So what we did is we, we got her to get some raw milk, and uh, we got her to you know, do some good probiotic things, and we turned it around, and now she has a very healthy young lady. But that's how quick they're doing it. They're, and, you know, I don't know, in defense of a lot of these guys on the pharmaceutical side, maybe they're doing what they were taught. Maybe they don't know any better. Maybe it's such big business they just don't care after a while. And maybe they get patients who have watched one too many TV commercials and they come in telling you what they think they need. Uh, I, I was watching a sports show the other morning, and one of the gentlemen on there said, it's nothing strange to see guys in these pro sports shop around so they get a doctor to tell them what they want to hear or to do what they want them to do. And uh, I've seen that in my own family where we lost somebody and he had shopped around until he got an opinion that he wanted to hear and a doctor that would do what he wanted and it ended up being a very terrible thing in the end. So it, it it's scary to to think that they don't know any better. You 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 know, you know, you like to think that um that they get smarter. Because even if your training tells you when patient shows up with A, give B after seeing a bunch of patients over time and seeing that you're getting sicker and all the side effects and other problems, you should be smart enough to figure out that what you're doing is terrible. And after a while, I don't care what your AMA tells you, you should be saying, guys, we made a mistake. This is wrong. Uh, I was looking at some things the other day on all the kickbacks and the money that they get paid to push certain medications. 
and it's unbelievable. There's a website you can go to that tells you the upfront money that everybody's allowed to know about. But a friend of mine that used to be a sales rep for the pharmaceutical guys said he had a private checkbook, and I think I mentioned this before, he said it was in his name so that he could write checks and do what he needed and not have to worry about it showing up on any website as a kickback. So they, they take really good care of you if you push medicine. But you got to ask yourself, what kind of guy can do that, seeing the bad things that happen, and you're doing it in the name of money? I mean, you might drive around in your Mercedes and play golf three days a week, but what do you do to your conscience? How do you sleep at night if you see those side effects? And a really good friend of mine and a patient, Richard, here in the Houston area calls them direct effects, and he's probably more accurate, uh, because they're bad for you. The nice things with what I use is they they all have good things. Uh, now, everybody doesn't benefit from the same thing. Uh, I, I hate it when somebody will advertise a product on uh, the Internet or Facebook or some TV infomercial, and everybody ought to be taking this ingredient. Well, it just doesn't work that way. You can give a particular thing to some patients and see wonderful things. To give it to others and see nothing, uh, and so, and then there's a range anywhere in between. So that's why you have to, as a doctor, you're always learning and troubleshooting and listening to the patients. Patients make you look very smart if you just drop the ego and listen because the body doesn't care if you went to medical school. It doesn't care what you think about yourself. It's got a reaction to whatever's going on, and it will tell the person. And if you listen to the patient, they know their body well. They know what's going on. They just don't know why or how or what to do about it. But they'll give you a lot of information, and, and they'll make you look smart if you let them. I always tell people, be very quick to listen and slow to speak, because they say that the successful, smart people are always listening, waiting, patiently learning before they speak. And the people that are not so successful or so smart, instead of listening and learning, they're just waiting their turn to talk, and so they're not paying attention. And you, you need to always be learning. One of the things that uh, I was looking into this week was eggs. Everywhere we go today, there's all kinds of different labeling about organic and natural and free range and, you know, grass-fed and all that good stuff. So I took a look at some of the information out there, and the problem is they don't have to tell us the truth. They uh, they can pretty much say what they want in the world of organic. Now, today, uh, egg production and organic eggs usually is going to be pasture-raised, and there is a certain amount of hours that the, anim that the animals, the chickens, are out in the pasture. The gold standard um, 
for grass-fed organic, and very few farms are doing this. But there is a uh, a great amount of time in this system where the chickens are out in the free range in the pasture. So most of their time, they're free. And that's what they call pasture raised, and that's really the true sense of organic. And they don't have any of the antibiotics, any crap in the food. They're eating naturally. Now, there's another version, and these all, these all fall under the uh, category of organic, but it's how they can bend the rules and get away with it. And this is what's bad when the government's involved. They have enhanced outdoor access, and this is uh, non-movable buildings, where in the one I just mentioned before, those are portable houses, and they'll move them all over the pasture so they get exposure to all different grasses, and they don't just clean one area dry. But enhanced outdoor is non-movable, and they have access to large pastures, and 60 to 70 percent uh, will be found outside at any time. So not as good as the portable houses above where you see most all the chickens outside as much as they want, but at least we have 60 to 70 percent, and they're pretty large pastures. Next one is fixed housing. And again, these are all falling under organic, so you got to be real careful what you're buying. Outdoor runs anywhere from a foot to 10 feet. Less than 10% of the chickens will be outside at any time. The pastures are picked clean, and the only thing left out there after a while is bird droppings. But they still get away with calling it organic. And then the very last one is the industrial scale. This this just breaks my heart because those chickens are laying eggs and and they're basically put in prisons. They've got um, a max uh, of 150,000 hens per barn, multi-tiered cages, so it's like, you know, several stories of them. And... Uh, the food is processed, so-called organic food. Small scratching area in front of the, the the little cages on the floor to earn the, allows it to call this organic. Eighty percent of the eggs are processed this way. They. The, the chickens that are up higher have boards. They can walk all the way down to the barn floor. And, again, there's that little tiny area, and there's some supposed organic food thrown out for them, but they're not getting out. They're not getting the natural uh, things, you know, in the pasture like the other ones. So if you have a choice, make sure you're dealing with a small rancher or farmer that lets their chickens get out and get natural and and doesn't feed them a bunch of crap food because the the best eggs are going to be the ones that come from natural pastures. And we want to make sure that those pastures haven't been crop dusted. Uh, our local pesticides or synthetic fertilizers, because that defeats everything. 
But with all these rules, you can bend them and manipulate them and come out okay. So basically what you've got is the first the first deal is great big pastures with portable houses that they roll all over the place so the chickens get quite a variety, and most of the time they're outside, and they call this the gold standard for organic. The enhanced, non-movable, but pretty large pastures, and they get a you'll see about 60 to 70% of them outside at any one time. The fixed housing, where they get a little one to 10 foot run, and they call that a pasture for them, and less than 10% are ever outside, and they pick those little 10 foot runs clean and there's nothing but chicken droppings, not good. And then the industrial scale is like a giant prison as far as I'm concerned, it's horrible. And the best thing we can do is buy with your, I mean, vote with your wallet and let them know you don't want your eggs from that kind of thing and get them poor chickens out of there and let them run free and drop eggs for us like they should instead of putting them in prison so we can have eggs. I'd never eat another egg again if that was the only way I could get an egg. Thank God there's plenty of places around here and Grauman Farm here in the Houston area uh, does that, and I have some good friends uh, out in the Hempstead area that bring me eggs every once in a while from their own little farm. So that's the way it ought to be. But vote with your wallet. Tell them that if they can't get good eggs to you and the chicken's running free, you don't want it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're getting close to that part of the evening. Uh, as always, it is an honor and a privilege to be a part of your health care, to come into your lives for an hour each week. Uh, I, I take this very seriously, and you mean a lot to me, and I want the best for you and you're part of my family, whether it's on the radio, distant patients I have all over the country. Uh, it means a lot to me. So... If you have any questions, if I ever can help you, you can reach me at the office. Uh, I'm there until 5 o'clock Central Time every day, except Wednesday. Wednesday I shut down a little early to get ready for the radio show. But you can call me at 832-220-6163. And you can also email me. But if you got a lot of questions, we need to actually talk. But the email is Dave Krupa at sbcglobal.net. And I hope every week that I help you make better decisions, give you a better path, and like Sharon in, in Kansas, maybe help her son and, and head off a very bad problem and turn him into a very healthy young man. Uh, it's a very rewarding thing to know that you did good for somebody and you're helping them. So, anyway, we're at that point of the show where it's may God bless you with health and happiness and have a great evening. Has always been the most destructive kind. Guess that's why now I feel so old before my time. Yesterday, when I was young, the taste of life was sweet. As rain upon my tongue, I teased at life as if it were a foolish game. The way the evening breeze may tease a candle flame. The thousand dreams I dreamed, the splendid things I planned, 
I always built to last on weak and shifting sand. I live by night and shun the naked light of day. And only now I see how the years ran away. Yesterday. heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. provided strength. Indeed, the chemical compounds of thyme contain antioxidants, an effective germicide that kills whooping cough bacteria and makes breathing easier. Just imagine what you can do with thyme herb when it comes to respiratory ailments like croup, pneumonia, asthma, and sinusitis. The extra benefit of thyme herb is that it soothes the nerves and stops spasmodic coughing, so you can get some rest. Who says you don't have time to take care of yourself? Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free for time, tincture, and tea to soothe your cough and get some rest. 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International 704-875-8010. Or online at thepowerherbs.com. Don't make the aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with Salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3w's.thepowerherbs.com. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866 866- 
888-729-3663 or thepowerherbs.com. resident herbalist Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. We're here to empower you. That's what we like to do here on Herb Talk. So glad you're with us. Thanks for joining us on American Voice Radio Network. Magical engineer Frank and I have a great show. We are going to be talking about how we can live longer. There's some new research that's really cool uh, and it's simple and it's so easy to implement. So if you want to live longer, you want to stay tuned to this. Also, um, I got a request this uh, past week uh, to work in this week into the show, some more information on how we can get rid of kidney stones. So we talked about it before, but yeah, we'll, we'll visit that again. And we'll see how much time we have because we got a bunch of other stuff we can really chat about, as well as a quack report. But before we get to all that great stuff, big salute and semper fi to our righteous men and women in uniform. Lifting them up in prayers, you know. Lifting you, me, this entire nation up in prayer. Asking for God's help because, man, do we need somebody to right this ship. And uh, I think we need to seek Lord's face in mind time. Hit the knees. Pray it up because, you know, prayer has power. God is on his throne. He's got power. He's not helpless. Of course, his will will be done. But you know how it is. Uh, If you read your scripture, God is influenced by the prayers of the faithful. Um, You know, he can change his mind on a couple of things. You know he has in the past. So uh, so hit the knees, mind the time, seek the Lord's face, because uh, time grows short. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. All righty, thank you, Frank. Let's see, what's up? First up, let's, um, well, where am I here? In my quacka. Ah, it says some new research here that we discovered in the Journal of Emotion, apparently, how you argue with people, they now say they can predict your health problems. So people that are prone to, you know, kind of being a hothead, uh, they're at higher risks of, you know, cardiovascular problems like blood pressure, uh, heart attack, stroke, you name it. Uh, Those who kind of, you know, kind of keep it all inside, they don't want to be confrontational, uh, they tend to have more aches and pains and um, uh, other health problems. But this is um, research that's being done. Where is this? University of California, Berkeley, Dr. Robert Levinson. He says, our findings reveal a new level of precision on emotions, how they're linked to your health, and how your behaviors over time predict the development of negative health outcomes. So... um, you know, they, this is based on 20 years of data that they were looking at. Researchers took into account 
uh, in their test group, people's age, education, exercise, if they smoked, if they drank alcohol or caffeine. And overall, the link between emotions and health outcomes were more pronounced for men. And the conversations, if you fly off the handle during a conversation, like I said, cardiovascular problems. If you kind of like barely speak, keep it all inside, avoid eye contact, well, you'll probably get back aches, stiff neck, joints, muscle tension, that kind of thing. So, yeah, well, we're all connected. Uh, moving along in the COAC report, uh, fungicide chemicals, they say, are found to produce autism-like symptoms in animals. So there's more studies on this. Apparently, the fungicides cause inflammation of the nervous system. So these fungicides, they, they use them to coat fruits and vegetables and uh, been shown to trigger gene changes in neurons similar to those in people that are affected by autism and Alzheimer's disease. So here's this research coming out of the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. There's a study that they're looking into these environmental substances and how they are contributing to health problems like autism and Alzheimer's. Um, their work is published in the Journal of Nature Communications, and they say autism spectrum disorders are a class of neurodevelopmental disorders that affect one in a hundred children. They say the core symptoms of autism would be things like difficulties communicating, having social interactions, obsessive interests, and repetitive behaviors. Now get this, folks. The FDA admits methyl mercury fungicide was accidentally used in vaccines in the 1970s. Coincidence? I don't know. Do you believe in coincidences? All right. Last but not least in the quack report, um, got some bad habits. Well, apparently you can uh, use this device called the Pavlock <laughs> to zap yourself out of the bad habit. Uh, it's a device that um, will shock you, give you a little zap of electri electricity. Um, if you're trying to break a habit, let's say you want to lose weight and you want, don't want to overeat or you want to stop smoking uh, or if you're wasting too much time on the Internet, well, have no fear. Uh, this device taking from the behavioral scientist Ivan Pavlov, remember Pavlov's dog? Well, instead of reinforcing positive behavior, this reinforces negative for bad habits. Um, it's a wristwatch. And it has a rechargeable battery. Every time you feel, let's say, a craving to pick up a cigarette or to eat a donut, whatever, uh, you hit the little button, it gives you a little zap, and it just reinforces that craving with a, a negative uh, response, so then you won't do it anymore. Um, well, they say pregnant women and minors under 18 shouldn't use it. Obviously, if you have a pacemaker, you shouldn't use it. But I'm saying, you know, it's... It's right along the line of an invisible fence for dogs, you know. Could have just used that, I guess. And that wraps the quack report. All right, Frank. Is it just me, or was that weird? Uh, that sounds kind of weird, the quacker, but okay. Um, are we sounding okay, Frank? Are we coming across okay? Anyway, uh, we're going to be talking about living longer. 
Yeah. Do you want to live longer? Some people say no, don't care to. Others like, yes. Well, scientists have longed, scientists have longed for the answers to what would help us live longer. And we've heard about recent research on the telomere length of our cell chromosomes, you know, dictating how long we live. Uh, we've heard about monks who have lived for hundreds of years in the Himalayan mountains and their strict lifestyles. But what they re what really is the key, if there is a key, to living longer? Well, there is there really anything that we can do to extend our longevity, you know, maybe by a decade or more? Well, let's just check it out. Well, have you ever heard of the blue zone? Well, scientists are calling global locations where people tend to live longer, they call those areas the blue zone. So uh, in this zone, it is not just an isolated one, you know, where two or three people outlive expectancy, okay? It's really areas where there is really a high percentage of people living longer lives. So there's this author and National Geographic Explorer, Dan Butner, uh, he revealed in his book, Blue Zones, that he thinks that the formula for extending our lifespan is within our reach. It's pretty simple. So he has traveled the globe, and he thinks there is a blend of lifestyle elements that can change our lives forever. So he came across this one area on our planet that he calls the dementia-free blue zone. Uh, during his research uh, for his book, uh, Dan discovered an Aegean island that is called Icaria, where the people are free of dementia. So uncovering years of census data on this island, he learned that the people there also lived an average of eight years longer than Americans. And that was just the average. So the people who lived inland on the island seemed to be more of an isolated culture, indicating, you know, they had some special health and long life issues going on there. So he wanted to find more about that. So uh, he went in and he spent some time there. And he says what they do is they take time socializing and, you know, they get together, they'll drink some wine, they'll play some games. Pretty easygoing community. Um, and they like to be in, in touch with nature outside. So they're also physically fit population. He says they hike. There's a kind of a rugged terrain area. So they get plenty of exercise and fresh air and sunshine. He says they often take a mid-afternoon nap, which tends to lower cellular stress. So their diet is the Mediterranean type of diet, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, potatoes, olive oil. Uh, they're also very proficient in the use of medicinal herbs to help, you know, control their blood pressure and assist in their organ function. So they uh, like to use rosemary, sage, and oregano in many of their daily dishes. And what, um, what, Americans, what are Americans doing, you know, with their diet, their location where they live, their lifestyle, their outlook on life, and they're not living as long? Think about this. Oh, well, let's look at some common, common links. Dan Butner uh, discovered some very common links in certain areas of the world where people were healthier and living longer lives. And what he found sounds like pretty much like common sense, and it really puts a spotlight on the risks modern civilization presents to our health. So here are some of the highlights. Uh, 
he, one category was activity. He said Americans really don't move enough, and when they do, it's not as fluid as the cultures that are living longer. So when a body is not healthy, it does not have, uh, it doesn't have this move, this smooth movement of fluidity to it. So as a, um, there's a definite indication, he says, on a person's stride when they walk. So a fluid stride indicates health, especially in the colon digestion area. But when there is this rigidness in the gait or the stride, it indicates some sort of congestion in the system. They, they decided that, I think, in World War II, when spies were trying to identify other spies kind of thing, they would, they would you know, for hours watch tape and reel of the enemy walk, walking, and they could actually identify a, a enemy spy by his walk. And, and, uh, and they found out um, also that when they would go to Africa, the Africans have a very fluid walk, but, of course, they have really good digestion. They get lots of uh, fiber. So this makes total sense, and Dan, I think, is pretty much correct on that. Uh, he also observed that the people who were living longer lived in what he calls in a walkable community, uh, and they had their own gardens. Uh, they didn't have too many modern conveniences. So, you know, their kitchens were small and compact, and they could make meals quickly and simply. Uh, wasn't a whole lot of uh, gadgetry going on there. Uh, you know, they didn't have the rotisserie or anything like that. See? Um, another category was purpose. Uh, he said he also noticed that the people who confessed uh, to live the longest had purpose to their lives. They, they actually lived seven years longer, according to his research. So he declared that if we know what we're passionate about, we have healthy values, and we share our talents with other people, then we're going to live longer. Another category he lists is the character of the lifestyle we live. Uh, Reutner also refers to the lifestyle of people in these blue zones. He says they live in a way that reduces stress and inflammatory diseases. And this is important. Uh, he's, he noticed that people did not have what Americans called age-related diseases. And he feels that their diet, their meditation, their prayer, their naps, their exercise really help the people live longer. So Brutner reports that this kind of lifestyle really cuts um, you know, way back on uh, the sedentary habits Americans tend to have, and also cuts way back on the calories by at least 20%. Um, now, one other important fact is that people of the Blue Zone have affordable lifestyles, so they don't have credit cards and credit issues and all that hanging over their heads. Uh, another category was uh, plant-based. They said uh, that the diet of these living longer, these folks in all these Blue Zones, they ate mostly plants. Uh, the diet is heavy on beans, green plants, and whole grains. And um, if they eat meat, it's about four ounces of meat only twice a week. And in the blue zone areas, um, they're going to eat, he says, seven times more vegetables than they do meat. And the meat, when they do eat it, is definitely either grass-fed or it's fish. Um, and then, they, then there's this one category I just love. It's called the wine category. He points out that in a lot of these cultures, um, these folks uh, drink responsibly, and they have wine every day. 
now, if you look at your Bible in Psalms 104, verse 15, it says, Wine that makes glad the heart of men, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. And of course, you know, the Bible was referring to organic sources of grapes for wine, non-GMO and unrefined grain for bread, and oils for the cardiovascular system, which, you know, is not, you know, over-processed and still has its omega-3 fatty acids in it. So your olive oil, basically. Now, Butner said that his research suggested that two glasses of wine daily exceeds uh, your life, or extends, sorry, extends your life, but he says, by several years. And uh, the most wine um, that they drank was two cups. They kind of limited it to two cups uh, each day. So it most likely, you know, helps with digestion and also reduces some stress. And I think that's a good thing. You can relax a little bit. Also, there was uh, this mention of dairy products, too, in the blue zone areas of the world. This is interesting. Um, These cultures, if they did use any kind of animal milk product, it wasn't pasteurized or homogenized. And in most cases, it was from goats, goat milk, okay, goat cheese, that kind of thing. Um, Another category he had was loyalty. Uh, He says his findings also showed that these cultures put family first, nurturing relationships and living in close proximity to aging parents was also a blueprint for their longevity. He said having people you can trust and count on extended life by an estimated 12 years. Hey, this makes total sense to me. Okay, let's say, you know, you're empty nester and your kids live on the other side of the country. Or you're in a blue zone, your kids live, uh, you know, just over the little crest on that hill there. You know, a little knoll, you know, about 15-minute walk. Which would you rather have? Well, I guess it depends on your kids, right? <laughs> but, you know, all in all, if you're friendly with your kids, your kids are pretty good, and you raised them right, and they haven't departed from, you know, the good way you raised them, then you definitely want them close by you as you get older. It probably gives you some... some um, reassurance, some peace. Uh, Another category was faith. Uh, Brutner, he couldn't escape uh, this other correlation factor. He said that in these blue zones, people had a deep sense of belonging, and they were connected by their faith. And he says it didn't matter if it was Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, whatever. He says he concluded that having a strong faith added an extra 14 years to your life. Hmm. He also had a category labeled friends. Um, He noted that people in the blue zones living longer than other parts of the world also had a solid network of close friends. And it wasn't a bunch of them either, you know. Uh, They didn't have, you know, acquaintances or thousands of friends on Facebook. You can't be a good friend to that many people. So real friends, he says, are reliable, are They are essentially family, an extended part of your family. So real friends are rational, and they have a sound mind. And Brutner said that the elements, these elements had a direct impact by adding several years to a person's life, if you got friends. Real ones, you know, the ones you can call up at 3 in the morning uh, if you got a problem. And they won't hang up on you. They won't say, my cell phone battery died. All right. All right. 
Well, here's a quote. Let's see. This is from Sally Bear. She wrote a book called uh, 50 Secrets of the World's Longest Living People. And she studied people everywhere in Japan and Greece and Italy, India, China. And she says these specific people uh, in these groups have two or three times the amount of people living past 100 years of age, 70% less chronic disease as well in these blue zones, you know. All right, so, so what are the global blue zones of the world? Well, let's, let's go down the list. Um, Andorra, it's a mountainous region in, between France and Spain. The Mediterranean, of course, with the Aegean island, Icaria. Um, let's see, the Vilcambia Valley in the Andes Mountains of Ecuador, the Himalayas. Uh, let's see, uh, the Abkhazians and Georgians. They live in mountainous regions near the Black Sea, near Russia. Uh, the Maku in South China, Okinawa, Japan, of course, before the nuclear problem. Uh, Singapore, San Marino, uh, near Italy, or San Mario, near Italy. Hong Kong, Australia, France, Canada, Switzerland, and Sweden. Apparently, those are the blue zones. Does the U.S. have any blue zones? Well, the longevity rates in certain areas of the United States where people are living past 100, uh, we're in the Northeast or Midwest sections. And it was thought because in part that families living, they were living in close proximity to each other. So they had some sort of, you know, you know, connection there. Loyalty, family, um, you know, some, some real faith in your friends and family. So uh, the, the, the states that have more people living to or past 100 are Hawaii, Minnesota, North Dakota, Connecticut, and Utah. There you go. So, you know, here we are. We have some cultural clues. Obviously, our ancient ancestors did things differently. You know, they took time to enjoy a meal. They often reclined on the floor or at a table. Often there was, you know, maybe just two meals a day that were served at noon and evening. And the whole and they had grains. The ancients used a lot of ancient grains like barley, flax, millet, spelt, wheat, non-GMO, of course. And the meats that they used, if they were having meats, were lamb, deer, antelope, ox, gazelle, goat, fish, quail, or chicken. If they had milk and curds, you know, it was probably from goats. They had eggs, of course, olive oil. And these were all staples. And they had a spice. If they had spices, it was salt, mustard, garlic, coriander, cumin, and fennel. Sometimes a little sage and rosemary. Uh, some other herbs as well. And, of course, the beverage of choice was either, either water or wine. And fruits, nuts were in abundance, usually were the dessert. Um, an ancient dish may have been lamb stew with figs with some wine, uh, maybe an apple salad on the side. And if they did have dessert, it was raisins or bar barley cake, maybe with a little tea. Uh, so, And sometimes they would have fish, and they would serve it with a honeycomb and baked onions. So uh, the ancients, you know, knew how to cook simply for nutrition's sake, and they used combinations of spices, sweet and sour, uh, to make the meal interesting and more satisfying. 
So, you know, herbs, some herbs, some research from the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, University of Rome, they're looking at some health benefits of some herbs. So when they push aside the folklore that, you know, some herbs kept spirits away, the researchers were finding herbs can actually extend longevity, offer mental clarity, and reduce inflammatory diseases. So one herb in particular was uh, throughout the Mediterranean was rosemary, and it was based on some research that came up that the herb extended life to 100 years. Wow. So they wanted to prove that. So um, the best, however, it's best really to include your herbs with a healthy lifestyle, just not just, you know, rely on the herb. Get that regular exercise in as well. But it was interesting that the people that live in the Mediterranean area with their lifestyle, large majority of the population are living longer, uh, quite often past 100, whereas in the U.S., only a mere 0.02% reach 100 or, or older here. So according to the research that you will find in the Journal of Neurochemistry and Nature Review Neuroscience, they are stating rosemary shows it supports your brain function, with its caronostic acid, its romaranastic acid, and its antioxidants to help reduce inflammation. Your stroke risk protects your brain cells, and actually looking for a possible benefit uh, rosemary may have towards cancer. How about that? So herbs are here for the service of man. Psalms 104, verse 14. And uh, God can't lie, right? I got to take a break, but I'll be back. Stay where you are. life into the original medicine herbalist wendy wilson will be right back job stress financial obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out when life is too much to handle use apothecary herbs emotional stress formula feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704 704- 875-8010 or order online at the three W's dot thepowerherbs.com. Talk- 
Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Henry Ford, the automobile. And herbalist Wendy Wilson? Well, discover for yourself. Listen to Herb Talk live. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate in those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand, have a plan, have peace, and request your pandemic kit today. Or take your chances with the bad boys. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Singing that. It's crazy, huh? 
All right. Well, uh, we're wrapping up this thing on how we can live longer. And um, I personally, I don't have any doubts uh, that God created these medicinal herbs for our benefit. You know, they're here for the service of man. How could it not be for our benefit? So we can really tap into them if we choose to or not. But, you know, certain herbs perform certain actions. And some herbs, you know, provide nutrition to help balance and support your system. Some provide action to move substances like, you know, blood, mucus, and other bodily fluids. And some herbs are designed to draw out toxins. So learning how to use these types of herbs gives the user a whole lot of power over their health and their longevity. So why wait for science to make a pill out of rosemary when you already have this herb? And it's all together with all its photonutrients. It's a, it's a whole food thing. So if, if you'd like to learn more about, you know, using herbs and, you know, that are certified whole food herbal products that can really empower you, well, then call the folks at Apothecary Herbs. They have rosemary and much, much more. Yes, they do. You can give them a call. The toll-free number if you want to order or to request a free product catalog is 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. But if you're outside the U.S., dial 704-885-0277, 704-885-0277. Of course, they have a website. Visit them online at thepowerherbs.com, thepowerherbs.com, because if you're serious about herbs, you need apothecary herbs. Um, they'll instruct you, educate you on the herb. It's a learning curve, but it's something that'll stay with you. It's like tying your shoes. You won't ever forget. Uh, thepowerherbs.com, give them a call, 866-229-3663. Right now, they're having their Memorial Day special. And uh, you can save 10% and get free U.S. ground ship on your orders of $65 or more. And that's good through the 31st of May. So uh, you can uh, use the coupon code on the shopping cart, M-Day, that's M-Day 16. Um, Should be posting that up on the homepage if it isn't there already. And um, that expires on the 31st, so uh, take advantage of that. You know, if you're thinking about, hey, you know, I'm just thinking about doing a cleanse. Well, now's a good time. You'll save 10% and get free ship. Yep, yep. Get those toxins out. Relieve that cellular burden. Let the body go. Oh, gosh, that's great. All right, we're going to move along. We're going to talk about how, if you tend to have kidney stones or you know somebody that does, how you can sidestep that problem. You know, kidney stones are kind of a common urinary problem, too common, really, in the United States. And we can expect about 10% of the U.S. population, that's 30 million people, to have this problem with kidney stones. Majority of them are going to be men. You guys out there, you have this way more frequently than us females do. So the men are three times more likely than women to develop kidney stones. And once you get them, it's a 40% more chance, likely chance you'll keep getting them over the next five years, and 80% more likely over the next 25 years, unless you make some changes, because there's something you're doing that's making you, you know, vulnerable to getting them. So we're going to give you a heads up. Uh, so what are your your risk points? Well, uh, what are, are some people more prone to getting the kidney stones than others? Well, some factors that will increase your risk are going to be heredity, infections, 
medications you're taking, metabolic malfunctions, and, of course, your diet, one of the biggest, the biggest areas, is you have that control right now over your diet. So you, if you want to, need never have to uh, experience a kidney stone again if you want to be proactive. It also should be noted that Caucasians are more predisposed to developing kidney stones than African Americans. And so you're more likely to develop kidney stones between the ages of 20 to 40 years of age. And you're more likely to develop them if you have um, a thyroid problem and you're taking thyroid hormonal medications or loop diuretics. If you're taking those two drugs, more likely to get kidney stones. So how do the stones develop? Well, the kidney stones are kind of these hard crystal substances. And they get separated from the urine, and then they accumulate on the inner lining of the kidney. And your kidneys are these really fine filters. They're like the consistency of tissue paper. So if you've got a Bible, and you know how fine those pages of your Bible are, tissue paper, really? It's like that, really fine. Uh, So the stone is made of calcium, oxalate, and phosphate, and when you don't have a good balance of chemicals in the urine to dissolve these elements, they're going to make stones uh, and give you a problem in your kidneys. So what you eat affects these chemicals and crystal content of your urine. So what we would eat to help prevent this high buildup of calcium, oxalate, and phosphate? Well, it's, it's really easy. You don't want to eat the Western diet, okay? Uh, countries that adopt the Western way of eating, they get a tenfold increase in kidney stones. All right, so here are the types of kidney stones. Depending on your lifestyle and your family tree, you can develop specific types of kidney stones. So the calcium kidney stone is the most common, and that's when the calcium not used by your body gets flushed out into the urine. And if the calcium hangs around, it tends to bind to other waste materials in the kidneys, and then it forms a stone. Another kind of stone is the stervite which uh, contains more magnesium and ammonia, which is a waste product. These usually form after the urinary uh, tract infection happens. So the uric acid stone is another one. It'll form when you got too much acid in your urine. Uh, and the rarest form of kidney stone is the uh, cysteine stone, which is cysteine. It's an element of buildup. uh comes from muscles and nerves. It builds up in the urine and... Uh, causes a cystinosis type of situation, and that's why they call it a cysteine stone. So what are the symptoms? Well, if you ever had a kidney stone, you already know. Uh, most kidney stones can pass through the body undetected. Uh, it's a, the big stones that we really notice because they get stuck. They usually get stuck in the urinary tract, and they block the flow of the urine, which can cause severe and persistent back and even side pain. Other symptoms will uh, be blood in the urine, fever, chills, nausea, vomiting, cloudy urine, urine that has this bad odor to it, and a burning sensation when you urinate. So your physician will want you to do a complete medical history, physical exam, and maybe order some diagnostic procedures. And you may be subjected to a series of x-rays or of your kidneys or your bladder, maybe some dye injected through your vein, maybe an ultrasound. The x-ray could also show any tumors, stones, or other reasons for malfunction. So, of course, there is the urine analysis that can also check for cells like white and blood, uh, red blood cells, 
and chemicals or protein in your urine. So you will probably get, you know, jabbed a little bit, get some blood taken to see if there's any unusual substances that could be promoting your stones. And uh, the a renal ultrasound, you know, like I said, can can actually be ordered, and that's pretty good because it can show the diameter of the stone. Um, you can see, you know, if there's a mass or a cyst. So, um, you know, th there are some pluses to getting examined to find out what you're dealing with. So what could be the prevention? Well, the National Institute of Diabetes and the Kidney Disease uh, Institute recommends you drink more water, 12 glasses per day, and flush your stones out. Okay. Now, the beverages of choice... Um, that they recommend drinking are fruit juice, coffee, tea, and soda. I would never go there. Soda will, you know, just pull the calcium right out of your bones and put them in your kidneys. Don't do that. So drugs that are also um, there to prevent calcium buildup, um, Dr. Stanley uh, Goldfarb says that the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine in Philly, he says you want to change your diet uh, to cut your risk in half, uh, the Mayo Clinic agrees their test case of 108 patients changed their eating habits, drank more water, and they had no kidney stones for the next five years. So, you know, no soda. All right. Um, and anything that has lots of acids to it, uh, wine, tea, coffee, you know, obviously if you're going overboard on that, that'll be, you know, probably putting a little strain on your kidneys there. So what are some of the dietary changes? What are recommended? Well, if you're prone to the kidney stones, people who cut back on all their meats, which reduces a lot of protein in the urine, they had fewer stones. If they cut the meat portions to two to four ounces per day and it boosts their vegetable consumption, they had almost no stones. Sort of like the Mediterranean folk. If you can go to like to meat twice a week, mostly fruits and vegetables, you probably will never see the likes of a kidney stone again. So vegetarians have fewer stones, according to a study in Great Britain. Their study concluded that vegetable fiber was an antidote to kidney stones, mainly because it decreases the amount of calcium in the urine. Patients who went from vegetarian diets to meat-eating diets increased the calcium in their urine and their risk of kidney stones. Also, a study at a Halifax Stone Clinic at Camp Hill Medical Center they said that those who ate more wheat or corn bran fiber dropped the calcium in the urine significantly, reduced the reoccurrence of kidney stones by 60%. Now, here's something that's interesting. After World War II, the people of Japan started to eat more of the Western type of diet, and their cases of kidney stones tripled. Uh, a study at... Kinkai University in Okasa tested 370 patients, and those that drank more water and ate more vegetables with meals avoided large dinners and ate early in the evening before bed, 60% less likely to get kidney stones. Also, interestingly, uh, the diet worked even if the patient had high calcium in their urine um, if they were on prescribed medicines. So there you go. So here's some foods you might want to avoid. Uh, foods that create that high oxalate count will produce the oxalate stones in the urine. Um, foods like uh, sweet potatoes, baked beans, blackberries, rhubarb, and spinach, peanuts, tea, and chocolate. Um, 
So if you want to reduce the animal calcium in foods, you know, and avoid the dairy, you want to cut back on that, if not eliminate it altogether, um, because that kind of calcium doesn't have the boron and magnesium to regulate the uptake anyway, so you're not getting that much calcium from that. Um, also, the key would be to get your calcium from your vegetables, your fruits, and your herbs instead. Uh, doctors at Harvard School of Public Health conducted a very large study uh, for about four years, and they said men who ate calcium, lower, uh, calcium lowered their risk of stones 34% over the men that restricted their calcium intake. So the study revealed that calcium helps prevent oxalate from entering the blood, filtering through the kidneys, creating a stone. And um, the calcium in natural foods is what they were talking about, not the calcium supplements. Okay. Uh, now, also beverages, um, some beverages of choice uh, if you're a kidney stone sufferer. Water, lots of it is recommended. Uh, restrict your alcohol to moderate consumption because alcohol boosts levels of calcium and dilate the citrus juices with more water. You want to do that. And um, other beverages you want to avoid are the hot tea, coffee, chocolate, hot chocolate, sodas, that kind of thing. Um, they recommend eight ounces of water every four hours while you're awake. Drink that. Now, if you need some more assistance, um, there's some medicinal herbs that can really help you out. Um, juniper berries have lots of oils in them that are known to dissolve kidney stones. Juniper is excellent for disinfecting the urinary tract as well, kidneys and bladder uh, of any yeast and bacteria and other microbes. Um, now, if, if you have sensitive kidneys, you may want to avoid the juniper, so if you are you know, already diagnosed with renal disease, renal failure, um, skip the juniper and you would use some other herbs instead. Um, there is an upgraded cleanse called the Kidney Bladder Cleanse Kit at Apothecary Herbs that you can check that out. They also offer that in a juniper-free variety version, so you don't have to worry about the juniper. Uh, so check that out. Very effective. Cleansing the kidney bladder, strengthen the urethra, um, helps with urgency issues and stuff like that. Uh, so give them a call if you're interested and ask about the Kidney Bladder Cleanse Kit. Um, I think it's about $68. It's not a whole lot of money. Um, and you use it for about two weeks. Um, an amazing thing to have uh, in your cupboard. And it has a shelf life of 10 years. So check that out, thepowerherbs.com. It's under the uh, organ cleanses or the kit there, it's either one. and uh, Or just call and ask for the catalog. 866-229-3663, 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. That's where your healthcare options just became endless. Because it puts power in your hands. You're in control. You're not at the mercy. You're not at the mercy of people, other things going on, right? All right. Um, since we're talking about cleanses, and I got only, what, 10 minutes? Okay. Uh, so we're going to talk just briefly about bowel cleansing a little bit because it's probably, out of all the cleanses, it's the most asked about cleanse. Uh, and because it's the first cleanse you do, um, and it's the one that is, I would say, offers the most benefit to the system overall, okay? And it's because it's the last stop of toxins that accumulate, and once you clean that up and uh, open up that elimination channel, you have more of a free flow of toxins out of the system, 
and it reduces the cellular stress on your other organs. So the bowel cleanse is in particular a key cleanse to overall health. And um, a lot of people say that once they did their first bowel cleanse and they did it properly, they felt like a 400-pound gorilla was lifted off of their body. Uh, They just felt lighter. Um, They had more focus. Um, They weren't as distracted or foggy-headed. Some people lose 10 to 15 pounds. Uh, when they do the cleanse. And it's not like you're starving or, or fasting on the cleanse, far be it from that. Um, it's just that you're getting rid of a whole lot of unwanted waste material that has been congested and lodging in the tissues. So, um, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you move all the water out of our bodies, what are we? We're just a, what, a pile of two pounds of minerals or something like that. So, I mean, this these bodies can really you know, hold on to a lot of impurities and we don't need. Now, there's about 250,000 cases of bowel disease that crop up each year, and that's like 14 million people. And they wind up at the hospital suffering from all kinds of things. Um, It really does wreck lives to have the bowel not functioning very well. And 2 million people get placed on disability because of malfunctioning bowels cost about a billion dollars a year. So what kind of disease are we talking about? Well, we're talking about not just your average constipation, but we're talking about, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, diverticulitis, uh, your gallstones, which can be affected by the bowel, um, gastritis, reflux diseases, hemorrhoids, um, ulcers, pancreatitis, even Crohn's disease. So we're talking about a lot of things that are linked together and the bowel is the key. So um, digestive malfunction is really a disease. Um, When something's not working right, it's constipated, it's not free-flowing, it's not fluid, it's not operating like it should, well, then we get illness and disease. And we can become chronically ill with this area of the body. Um, So uh, there's like 12 new cases or 200,000 people each year that come down with a diagnosis of ulcerative colitis every year, uh, 10 new cases of Crohn's disease or 100,000 people every year. Um, well, you know, it's, it's, it's each day, 10 new cases a day. That's a lot of people. Um, let's see, Canada's got the same problem. They got like 5 million people with bowel disorders like irritable bowel syndrome. A lot of inflammation, I mean, a lot of irritated tissue down there. And... Um, and all you get is symptom management from our allopathic healthcare system. Um, there are very few digestive disease cases in Africa because, like I said, the Africans get a lot of fiber and uh, they don't have the congestion of that organ like we do. And they have those very fluid strides to their walk. So um, having a sick digestive system um, is going to really complicate things. Uh, If you get diagnosed with Crohn's disease, you can have complications outside of the digestive tract. You'll get skin rashes, arthritis, inflamed eyes, and and then your your immune system is under attack because the digestive tract is um, not removing the toxins fast enough, so the immune system gets overworked. So Crohn's disease is really considered um, an autoimmune system disease now. 
And autoimmune diseases cause inflammation, and therefore, irritable bowel syndrome can even fall into this category. Um, so what it is is really our diet, and we have failed to look at some of the symptoms, the signs that our body was communicating to us what was wrong. Um, and some of them are subtle, and you can miss them. Um, some of them, you know, you can have them for years, and you're just like, wow. You just think that's just the way it is, you know? Uh, so failure to eat properly, sometimes we don't realize we're allergic to our diet, uh, can have a big impact. Toxic waste can build up in the system, and our whole body is fighting against this every day, 24-7. So um, let me give you an example. Um, growing up as a kid, I lived in a household Oh, that, you know, was kind of based on what I would call Irish-type foods, you know, dishes. So there's meat and potatoes all the time. Um, vegetables, of course. Um, I don't remember too much fresh stuff. Everything seemed to be more cooked. And lots of dairy. You know, lots and lots and lots of dairy. I mean... There was a glass of milk with your dinner. If you were a kid, that's what you had. Um, and then, of course, dessert may have been uh, pudding. Um, again, dairy. Um, so lots of dairy. And I didn't realize until I was in my 30s that I was allergic to dairy. And it totally messed up. It's not normal. So um, you should go two, three times a day, not two or three times a week. Uh, if you don't go two or three times a day and you're going two or three times a week, you will have toxins lodged in your colon tissue and you will have health problems crop up. So um, bowel cleansing, when I had did my first bowel cleanse when I was in herb school, I got rid of some back pain I had. Uh, I felt great. My back pain never came back. Still haven't had it in almost 30 years. You know, so I thought I was stuck with that back pain. And it was very disabling. Back pain's very disabling. So um, don't let that stop you. I mean, herbs are here for the service of man. It really did serve me. It's, it gave me liberation. It gave me back my health. And what you want to do is use herbs that pull all these impurities out of the colon tissue. And let me tell you, a bowel cleanse isn't about just moving the bowel, the bowel and emptying the bowel, you know, like a laxative. That's not what it is, okay? It's about pulling out toxins that have been there for years and then encapsulating them in the herbs in the cleanse so you don't reabsorb them and then expelling them. It's also about toning that bowel muscle if it's sluggish or lazy. Uh, so there are ways to do that. And let me tell you, if you've been on laxatives for years and prescription drugs to move the colon for years, you've got, a, you've got a colon. You're risking atrophy of that colon muscle doing that, which isn't good. So if you're interested in cleansing, you know who to call. The folks at Apothecary Herbs toll-free number is 866-229-3663. Thepowerherbs.com is the website. And when you get your catalog, 
All your cleanses are in order and how you do them. Very easy to understand. But if you have questions, you know who to call. The folks at Apothecary Herbs, they'll talk with you and help you understand. 866-229-3663, thepowerherbs.com. That's where your healthcare options just became endless. Yes, you can take the power back. You can. And be healthier and live more vital lives. And probably extend that life. You know, extend that longevity, get some rosemary, get some really good stuff. Thepowerherbs.com. I'm out of time. Oh, my goodness. The information presented is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure disease. So seek medical advice, if you dare, from a licensed medical physician before using any product or therapy. I'm your herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Until next time, be well. have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. And this is Financial Survival for Wednesday night, 25th day of May, year of our Lord, 2016. James Corbett is scheduled to be our guest after the first break. Um, before we get to James, we'll talk about the markets, today's markets, and uh, I'll have a few comments, and then James will arrive. Um, gold was down $2.90 today. 
on American markets to $1,225 per ounce. But in the overnight market, it's back up. The foreign markets, it's uh, it's back up $7.40. So it's currently $1,232.40 as we speak. Uh, silver uh, gained nine cents during the day. It was up to sixteen dollars and thirty-nine cents per ounce. Platinum lost six to nine hundred ninety-six dollars an ounce. Palladium was flat, didn't gain or lose. It's at five thirty-six per ounce. And go down into the crude oil. Uh, crude oil was it's currently at forty-nine dollars and eighty-one cents per barrel. That reflects the price on the evening, on the uh, overnight markets. U.S. dollar index uh, was down on the overnight markets, but it was up a little today. And today it closed in New York at 95.39. Standard & Poor's was up 14 points to 2,091. Uh, NASDAQ was up 34 points to 4,895. And the Dow Jones closed 145 points up at 17,851. <clears throat> I'm glad to see the overnight markets pop gold back up. We've had been in a state of decline here for a couple of weeks. And I think with the overnight market pushing it up $7.40 at least so far, I think maybe we've seen the end of that. I think we've seen a bottom for gold in the, in, the, in the current state of affairs. And I'm kind of expecting and hoping that during the day tomorrow, we'll see, we'll see further imp improvement in the price of gold. Uh, where are we? Let's take a look at the script. Congress wants, here's a headline from SovereignMan.com. Congress wants to prohibit the Federal Reserve from bailing out bankrupt states. Just days ago, in the midst of the Puerto Rican debt morass, 24 members of Congress introduced the No Bailouts for State, Territory, and Local Governments Act. This act has not been passed. They have 24 sponsors, right? not enough all by themselves to make this, make this happen just yet. But <clears throat> the, the story is interesting because it's evidence of a sentiment that is at least gaining traction in Congress that they're done bailing people out. Now, they bailed out the banks that were too big to fail, right, in 2008 and on, onward. Um, they caught a lot of flack for that, and maybe they've had more flack than they want, or maybe they just don't have the capacity to assume liability for bailing out the states and cities. And that's what, that's what this is about, and territories. Um, again, the No Bailouts for State, Territory, and Local Government Act, Governments Act. Um, apparently, Congress uh, knows there's a massive wave of defaults looming at the city and state level. Detroit and Puerto Rico are just the tip of the iceberg. Many U.S. states have atrocious finances. Illinois and Maine, for example, have dangerously low levels of cash relative to the debts and obligations they have to pay. I'm not absolutely certain what that means. 
I'm inclined to think what they're telling us is that Illinois and Maine at the state level, they actually have enough cash to stay current on their debts, all right? but they don't have very much more than they absolutely need. A little bit of a bump in the road, and they will be in jeopardy. Again, it says they have low levels of cash relative to the debts and obligations they have to pay. Um, I would question the debts and obligations they have to pay. How are they going to pay them? <laughs> you know, one constant theme that I've been pushing for several years now is the debt is too great to be repaid. There's more debt in this country than we can possibly hope to repay. And it means that inevitably some of that debt, and probably most of it, and I'm, I mean, it would be astonishing to me if at least 50% of the debt wasn't repudiated, either by outright express repudiation, where Congress and or the president said, sorry, boys, we can't pay the debt, we're broke. Or by a more subtle form of repudiation, which is what inflation is. Inflation is just a device where ultimately debtors can repay their debts with cheaper dollars. And inflation is evidence that the government is bankrupt. Um, if they weren't bankrupt, why don't they pay their debts? They have to cause inflation in order to get out from under at least part of that debt. They pointed out Illinois and Maine, for example, have dangerously low levels of cash relative to debts and obligations they are expected to pay. And they go on to point out that New Jersey and California are among several states that are technically insolvent, meaning they lack sufficient assets to make good on all the promises they've made, like pensions and bonds. They're technically insolvent. They're not, they don't have dangerously low levels of cash. They're in negative territory. They're not in positive. They're in negative. They can't pay their debts right now. Their, their debts right now. They can't pay them. They've got to find a way to jockey around these things and repudiate them or drag them out or do something. But uh, they are in danger. The article goes on. It says the federal government is in the exact same boat. Uncle Sam has the worst finances of the bunch. $19 trillion in debt. And that's what they admit to. That's the government's official debt, $19 trillion and growing. We hear about that all the time. But there are people who say the government's real debt, including unfunded liabilities, and this includes the Congressional Budget Office and economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, they say the real total debt to the federal government is over $200 trillion. That's 10 times greater than what they're admitting to with the official debt of $19 trillion. Huh? $19 trillion is going to be difficult to repay, but it could be done over a period of, say, 10 years if we didn't go any deeper into debt. And that's not going to happen. Government needs to go deeper into debt. But if we didn't go any deeper into debt, we could pay off that $19 trillion over a course of 10 years. We'd have to tighten our belts as Americans, but it could be done. Um, but $200 trillion? If economist Kotlikoff is correct, and I believe he won a Nobel Prize, um, and the Congressional Budget Office, I don't know what they're talking about. They're including unfunded liabilities. $200 trillion, there's no way. That's not, going to be, that's not going to be paid. I think that translates into something like $650,000 for every man, woman, and child in the country. Divide the debt, $200 trillion, 
by 320 million population, and I think it works out to somewhere in the vicinity of $650,000 for you and me and each of your kids and my kids and your parents and your friends and spouse, 650. How soon can we expect your check? You know, Uncle Sam really needs it, so write that check and send it out in for 650000 Well, the truth of the matter is very few people have that kind of assets in this country, and what that tells us is that the debt can't be paid, and it probably, and if I, in my guesstimate, and I've said this for four or five years, my guesstimate is when the stuff hits the fan, at least 80 to 90% of the debt is going to be wiped out. Which means if you're holding a federal bond, a United States bond, or your pension fund is holding United States bonds, there's going to be a moment when all of a sudden they're going to have to to admit, oh my gosh, we don't have the resources to fund your retirement. And if you are, you know, if you're getting on in years and you don't have an alternative form of savings of your own, and the government has to admit that it can't pay on the U.S. bonds. They'll either have to inflate or just flat out repudiate and say, sorry, we're out, we're broke. Maybe both. You're going to be, those of you who are on the verge of retiring are quite possibly going to be in a world of hurt. And I'm talking about the people who have, who think they have, sufficient wealth stored up where they'll have a comfortable retirement. That may just be a pipe dream. Those of you who don't have anything saved, and that's a lot, all right? A lot of potential retirees probably don't have a nickel saved. Oh, my gosh. I mean, every one of us is going to be in a lot of trouble because the currency is going to be devalued if things go badly. The debt instruments are going, will turn out to be worthless to a significant degree. The stress and strain on the economy will be enormous, and we're headed into something that may make the Great Depression look like something of a picnic. It may be far worse. A lot of people say that. I'm not, that's not the original comment by me, and most of you have heard this in the past. But in any case, they're saying the states, many of the states, not all of them, but many of the states are basically broke, and the federal government's in the same situation. They have the worst finances of the state and local governments. But unlike state governments, the U.S. federal government has an ace in the hole, the Federal Reserve. Right now, the Federal Reserve is one of the largest holders of U.S. debt. Whenever the United States government goes into debt, the Fed essentially bails them out by printing money and buying treasury bonds. Now, this is an interesting story all by itself because... Back three, four years ago, maybe a little bit longer, but approximately three to five years ago would be my guess. I don't remember clearly. The federal government had an auction, which they do on a regular basis, to auction off bonds. And if they had a bond that was worth $100,000, they would put it up for auction, and they would take the best bid, and the best bid would probably come in at something like $98,000. Right? didn't pay full face value. They only paid part of it. And then they would collect the bill when they sold the bond. And when it matured, they'd gain, regain the $2,000. And that would essentially be their interest on the bond. Now, it might have been they were going to get 95000 Whatever they expected on the bond, it didn't happen. 
they were having an auction and all of the potential buyers or potential bidders at the auction, they wouldn't bid 95000 on a $100,000 bond. And as the auctioneer had to bring the price down lower and lower, they realized that if they allowed these bonds to be sold at a diminished price, let's say for the sake of argument, that the bidders were not going to pay over $70,000 for a $100,000 bond. Let's say that. I don't know that to be true. Maybe they were going to pay eighty. Maybe they're going to pay eighty-five. I don't know. But if they were only going to pay, say, $70,000 on a $100,000 bond, it would be evidence that the bonds, U.S. bonds across the country around the world, were suddenly worth 30% less than most people had assumed up until that moment. And therefore, they closed the auction rather than continue and create evidence that the bonds had been the real price, the market, free market price of the bonds was $70,000 for a $100,000 bond. They didn't want that evidence created. They closed the auction, and that was that. But the point was that the private creditors were no longer interested in paying something close to full face value on the bond. And they wanted a significant discount because they believed the United States government couldn't pay its debts anymore. Well, the government turned around and they knocked on the door of the Federal Reserve and by hook or by crook persuaded the Federal Reserve to, you buy our bonds, which the Fed did. They had something like $3.5 trillion worth of U.S. bonds have been purchased by the Federal Reserve since the Great Recession of 2007-2008. Right. The Fed has been buying the U.S. The government's bonds. And all they've done is just print more currency in order to pay for these bonds. And then the government takes the currency and they use it, they use it to uh, pay their help. Right? Salaries for people working for the government or paying their, some of their debts or rolling over the debt and paying the interest and keeping the loan performing or paying pensions, or whatever. But the Federal Reserve has shown significant reluctance to continue playing savior for the U.S. government. I don't know for a fact that they're done doing so, but I think they might be. I think when they tapered off in 2014 on the quantitative easing, and they stopped the taking more bonds from the government, and ultimately laying a foundation for more money to be injected into the economy. I think that may have signaled that they were just saying, look, this is it. We can't go any deeper. We're so deep in debt. We'll never get out ourselves. And they don't want to be destroyed to save the federal government. They have repeatedly said in the last six, eight weeks that they believe that they've done everything monetary, policy can no longer stimulate the economy. They keep claiming that fiscal policy is what's required to provide that stimulation. Fiscal policy is a function of the federal government. Monetary policy is a function of the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve is saying, look, we can't do any more. They're saying, you've got to handle this from here on out. We're out of here. Now, maybe that maybe they're going to get back in. Maybe they will do more. But I'm thinking that the government can't count on the Federal Reserve. In any case, for sure, the states don't have the ability to conjure money out of thin air like the central banks. Therefore, they, uh, the states, 
they're going to go to the federal government and say, please help us, save us. And the federal government, however, is too broke to bail anyone out, including itself. So we have this bill proposed in Congress to prohibit any federal agency, including the Treasury Department, from bailing out any bankrupt city, state, or territory, including Puerto Rico. If the bill passes, the Fed would not be allowed to print money to buy bonds issued by city or state governments. Um, Apparently, we don't have any states that are too big to fail. This implies that a national uh, bankruptcy, if there's going to be one, will probably start at the state and local level and work its way up to the federal level. The feds will almost certainly be the last entity to admit that it's bankrupt. And, of course, they've been bankrupt all along. There have arguably been bankrupt since, I mean, there's people that chase this all the way back to the Civil War, claim the debts, they've never caught up on their debt. Right? And certainly today, how do you explain $19 trillion debt if that's all it is? That's not going to be repaid. The government is bankrupt. It just hasn't admitted it yet, but it's like that, that uh, story about the emperor was wearing the invisible clothes. The little boy says, hey, that guy's nude. Yeah. So far, no one of significant authority has said, hey, that government is nude. But that's the case. We're going to take a break for some commercial announcements, and James Corbett should be joining us from the Corbett Report in just a couple of moments. Please stay tuned to Financial Survival. I'm Alfred Ask. provided strength. Indeed, the chemical compounds of thyme contain antioxidants, an effective germicide that kills whooping cough bacteria and makes breathing easier. Just imagine what you can do with thyme herb when it comes to respiratory ailments like croup, pneumonia, asthma, and sinusitis. The extra benefit of thyme herb is that it soothes the nerves and stops spasmodic coughing, so you can get some rest. Who says you don't have time to take care of yourself? Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free for time, tincture, and tea to soothe your cough and get some rest. 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International 704-875-8010 or online at thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it, It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. 
4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Hi, folks. I'm Alfred Adisk, and this is Financial Survival. Our guest is James Corbett from the Corbett Report, um, who I was hoping would be here. And Frank, our producer, has just now said, yes, he's actually here. <clears throat> so it's always kind of Frank. Frank leaves this as a mystery for me. It's one of the things I look forward to. Is James really here tonight, or is he not here? And I find out at the last possible moment. This causes me a certain amount of anxiety and stress, and I'm probably aging faster than I absolutely need to, and it's all because of Frank, our producer. Hello, James. How are you doing? You know, I'm debating whether I should just put my mic on mute and just uh, wait till, till you start pulling your hair out. But I'm here. I'm fine. Good to talk to you again. How's your, how's your sleep schedule? <laughs> not too bad. Not too bad. Last night was fun. We had both children up, uh, not able to sleep last night, but we're, we're settling in. Yeah, I understand. Um, I saw your video, or you were part of a video, entitled, Do Elections Change Anything? You were one of four people involved in a debate. And they were, con- they were contemplating a third where one, one, one or more were saying they needed a third party. Um, they seem to agree the change does happen, but not in a pretty or predictable manner. And you admitted that gradual political change is possible by means of the political system. But if I understood you correctly, you were not optimistic about seeing that change. You didn't seem to think that the the political system was a way to cause meaningful change and reform. Is my understanding correctly? Uh, Yes, more or less. My my ultimate position is that it depends on what your ends are. And if you're looking for incremental changes that can make for a more, slightly more freedom here or there, you can pull back some of the tyranny here or there, then yes, the political game, I think, can achieve that at some point, sometimes. Because the, although the dice are heavily loaded, they do. It is a war of attrition, so they will retreat from time to time. But my point is that my ultimate end is not for some sort of incremental change to claw back a little bit from the tyranny. My point, uh, what I am ultimately aiming at, is not to be involved in that game at all. 
and to ultimately get rid of over overturn the table. And that's never going to happen from within the political system. And on top of that, it's not just a consequentialist argument. I'm not just arguing about, oh, can we get, you know, X benefit for Y number of people? And then we'll put it into the equation. And yes, OK, so let's vote for candidate A, B or C. Uh, it's not an equation like that. For me, it's about the ethical principles involved. And fundamentally, I just don't support the, the political process. I, I don't think that it's uh, I don't think it's moral and uh, I won't support something that I, I don't think is moral, which is one of the reasons why I will never, ever, ever get sucked into voting for the lesser of two evils. Well, as would be everyone kind of envies you. We would all like to think we don't have to vote for the lesser of two evils, but it seems that it's our only that is the only choice. If you're going to vote, you're going to vote for the lesser of two evils. You may believe deeply in Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, but in the end, it's unlikely that you're voting for a white knight or a white princess who's going to save us all. We are going to take we're going to have a problem regardless of what happens. Why do you think we're going to have that problem? Why are those problems built in? Uh, I mean, it's a, fa a number of factors, but I mean, it, it, it is the system. It is the game itself. If there is an entity which, through its actions, can enforce its will upon the rest of the population, then that entity, by its very nature, is going to be tyrannical. And you can have built-in safeguards, quote-unquote, like the Bill of Rights. But I mean, A, we've seen how effective those Bill of Rights really are when the government wants to trample over them. They trample over them with very little uh, impasse. But I think, I mean, beyond that, it's the question of it, it becomes the political jockey for who gets to hold the brass ring of power. And you can hold that ring for four years or eight years until we get sick of this team and throw the bums out and get the other team into into power. But all one has to I mean, A, that is fundamentally going to lead to. Uh, problems. But secondly, all that the, the, the smart money has to do is back both horses. Just make sure that you have, you know, a, a finger in each pie, and then it doesn't matter which pie is running the country. You've got your finger in it. Your complaint about politics, if I understand correctly, is that politics is a kind of warfare. And it's, it's not just we're voting for someone because he's good. Frequently, we're voting for against Rather than voting for somebody because he's good, we are voting for some against the other guy because we think he is even worse. And there's an antagonistic nature in politics that kind of is conducive to a certain amount of violence and force. It's my side against your side, essentially, not what's best for everybody, what's best for the special interests. Um... Do you think that the violence and force that's inherent in politics is magnified by the presence of special interests, lobbyists and whatever, trying to persuade Congress, give us some free money, give me some free money, take it away from those guys and give it to me? Well, ultimately, that's all government is. It is uh, the, the assumption of a uh, uh, right a monopoly right on violence to initiate violence in a given mm -hmm. geographical area. That is what governments are. They claim to have this ability to to do that. And uh, based on that claim, who is going to try to gain power in that situation? It's psychopaths, it's control freaks, it's people who want to use that power for their own purposes, for their self-aggrandizement and or self-enrichment. And that's why it's always the 
the scuzziest people getting into politics because they will sell themselves out to whoever wants to buy that Mm -hmm. particular political office. And that isn't something that can be changed by voting. That is part of the system itself. And I think it's all based on the illusion, the, the delusion that somehow there is this group, there's this entity, there's this organization that calls itself government that has the right to do things that you and I do not have the right to do. Somehow the government has been invested with this ability to go and forcibly extract a portion of your wages every month or every year or whatever when, when it comes time to collect their pound of flesh. And I don't know about you, but I can't go around door to door and tell people that you know, I have to do this. Uh, sorry, you have to give me your money. Here, cough it up. Don't worry, it's going to good purposes mostly. Well, you can. Uh, I don't you, get to do that. You can if you wear a mask and you come in through the bedroom window. Um, that's right. Your cat that, that's 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 such an important point that ultimately government is the is the highway robber, as uh, as Lysander Spooner wrote about. But it has that added benefit that people imagine it has actual authority. People imagine that the government has the right to do this. If it was a masked man, you know, with a gun in your face saying, you know, give me give me your money or you die. At least people understand that is wrong and people will fight back against that in some way, in some manner. But when it's the government and, oh, well, look, they, they make roads and uh, they give us hospitals and schools and, oh, it's all rainbows and, and welfare. sunshine. Don't forget welfare. And, uh, welfare, unfortunately. Rich, and that's welfare it. Yeah. for the poor. What, what was the famous Minkin quote that basically every election is just a, uh, an, au- an advance auction on goods to be provided to the people? Uh, I can't remember the way he said it, but the way he said it is quite brilliant. But ultimately, the idea is people are just jockeying to see how much they can give themselves by pulling a given switch on the voting lever. You know, it's not just give themselves. It's how much can they take from the other people? Yeah, that's the problem with this is that the government is handing out unearned money or at least currency to buy votes. Vote for me and I'll see that you get a free lunch. There's no free lunch. Somebody's going to pay for that lunch. Somebody's got to. All right. And people are saying, well, not me. Let some other idiot pay for the pay for my lunch. And it's part of what it's part of a problem we have in this country. You know, we could look at a culture, a society, a nation and to the extent it is culturally homogenous, we would expect to see less violence within that culture, at least I would. Does it follow that multiculturalism is conducive to social, the kind of violence and force we're talking about that you find objectionable in the political system? Because one culture versus the other culture say, take the money from those idiots and give it to us. Right. And they, it's, right. On the on the other hand, if you have a, a homogenous society, and you might be able to see this, I mean, we're multi, we are increasingly multicultural in the United States, but Japan is famously xenophobic. They don't want anybody else other than Japanese over there. And I mean, this is something you should be aware of. Is this a reality in Japan? Are they a little more? Are they no, yes. yeah. I mean, I, 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 I guess xenophobic is the best word. I don't know if it's quite the right word. It, that implies some level of hatred or fear, and I'm not sure it's exactly based on that, but it is an incredible group insularity here in Japan, which does lead, of course, to an almost uniform cultural and social homogeneity um, and the 
the population is 98% ethnically Japanese. So mm-hmm. it's uh, uh, remarkably uniform in that sense. And there is a social order here that is not enjoyed in many other countries around the world. I'm not sure if there is a safer country in in those terms, in terms of street violence or whatever, in the world than in Japan. But I'm not sure it's exactly a, a, cal- a straightforward calculation. I mean, there are countries that are more multicultural that are still on the safer side. Um, you don't tend to think of street violence and, and uh, horrible, you know, out of control people in Canada, which is a mm-hmm. an officially government officially uh, has as a multicultural program that's been in place for decades now to promote multiculturalism. So it's not necessarily that there is a cultural aspect and a, uh, a sort of the way the public processes that that goes into it. Um, in the United States, uh, it's very much groups are played against each other. And I think that's done for political purposes. And and also, of course, it's uh, it helps um, corporations to have basically their workers at each other's throats so that they never form an effective opposition. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but I, I think it can be used as a weapon, certainly. Um, basically, this uh, it, not only the, the bringing in of people from from foreign cultures and who can't speak language and things like that, but also the the magnification that that undergoes in the media itself and the way those issues are spotlighted and the way they're there that uh, that problem is, is is even talked about can affect the way that it ultimately plays out on the streets. So at this moment of time in the United States, I think it is. I mean, it, since the Civil War itself, I'm not sure that the U.S. has ever been so on the brink of some form of civil war. And uh, I don't know exactly what the battle lines will be, but I think we all start see them starting to take shape as violence increases in this 2016 election cycle. Well, I think part of the reason violence, again, we are maybe running out of free lunches. And as there are less free lunches to, to pacify certain groups and both the poor with welfare and the rich with subsidies... There becomes more of a squabble. I want, give me the free lunch. Forget the other guy. Give me the free lunch. I want um, yeah. that. That's conducive to a certain amount of friction and maybe even civil war. And I heard you talk about that, at least briefly. You touched on the concept in the, uh, in the video, the possibility of civil yeah. war in this country. Now, how seriously do you think that's, I recognize there's a possibility always, but how probable is a civil war in this country within, say, the next five years? Well, of course, I don't mean it in the sense of the civil war, and I don't think it would be along geographical boundaries like that. But I think mm-hmm. the culture war that we've been talking about and highlighting for generations now is coming to some sort of head and it is becoming much more acute now and perhaps there is an element to which that's being radicalized by online echo chambers i think there is that space that has developed now for people to be so insular in the way that they interact with people that they are completely surrounded by like-minded people and can connect with those people regardless of geography so we are seeing a rise in white nationalism, for example, in the United States. And on the flip side of that, we see this social justice warrior phenomenon taking place in college campuses and Black Lives Matter movement and things like this, which really seem to be radicalizing a lot of people. And it's in a time of radicalization, it's harder and harder to stay in some something approaching a middle area. Um, people tend to get radicalized by radicalization. So it's a process that feeds on itself. And I think a lot of it 
we'll start to see the form of it in this election cycle. I'm not sure that it will come to a head in this election cycle, but obviously what happens in the next few months is going to determine the shape of either a Clinton presidency or a Trump presidency, whichever it may be. Well, <laughs> this is such a strange election. It's hard to know for sure who's going to be president or if we've even heard his name yet. I mean, Bernie isn't completely out of the situation if Hillary is indicted. Then what? And, you know, one of the things, I'll say that I've got one question I'll say for, for the beginning of the next segment of the program. Um, you were talking about you didn't believe that voting would change much, if I understood you correctly. But if that were true, why did the Republican establishment work so vehemently to prevent Trump from being nominated? The people in real power, they fought tooth and nail to stop Trump. And the Democrats are doing the Democrat establishment is doing the same thing to stop Bernie Sanders and try to get Hillary in a position to be nominated. Doesn't that indicate that they really believe that voting matters and who you elect really does make a difference? To an extent, I think, yes, there is the the, the predictability aspect of this. Um, I think the only thing that's predictable about a Trump presidency is that no one would know exactly what he's going to do next and what promise he's making that he'll actually keep and what thing he's just saying to get uh, to get in the headlines. And I think that aspect of it is not amenable to the ruling class who would much rather have a reliable puppet to puppet whatever they want. So I think to that extent, yes, I mean, it does make a difference um, if this person or that person is in power. But I'm looking more at the fundamental aspect of the way the system, the system itself, not just the way it functions, but the system itself. Either way, we now see the Republican establishment in bits and pieces climbing on board with Trump once they realize, okay, that. he's getting in. So now you get Sheldon Adelson coming in with $100 million, and you see Goldman Sachs financial advisors, and he goes to meet Kissinger and all of this. So it's turning into the exact same thing we would have seen with a Jeb Bush or in a Marco Rubio or anyone like that. All right, we'll break here for Take Some Commercials. I'm Alfred Adusk here with James Corbett from The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T. Report.com. We'll be back in a moment. Please stay tuned. Aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Oops. 
prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Folks, I'm Alfred Adask here on Financial Survival with my guest, James Corbett, from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. Let's move over to France a little bit. We've got an article from Miss Shedlock, and the headline is, France running out of gasoline strikes now spread to nuclear plants. France is running out of gasoline thanks to massive strikes at all the refineries. The strike spread to air traffic control, and many flights have been canceled. Hundreds of thousands of people are stranded. The strike is now about to spread to nuclear power plants. <laughs> and he offers what he says as a quote of the day. One cannot just turn off a nuclear plant. It is not like a thermal or hydro plant. <laughs> What's going on in France? What to do about nothing, or is this, a, is this becoming really serious? Well... I would almost say business as usual. I've been to Paris a few times in my life now, and every single time there were uh, mass demonstrations, protests, and strikes. And each time I thought, oh, wow, oh, I came at the bad time here. And then I realized, oh, this is just sort of the, the regular summer <laughs> schedule here in, in France. A way to maybe extend the summer vacation after two months or whatever they usually get off. Um, so strikes in France are not exactly an unusual occurrence. I don't know if I've ever heard of that actually affecting nuclear power plants before. That might be an interesting new development. But again, I'm not really well versed on that particular issue. Well, uh, it's it's just interesting, and you wonder. I think you may have the right idea here. It may be just business as usual. It is perhaps just a cultural phenomenon, a little bit like Italy. Italy likes to go out on strike from time to time, or at least they, they don't seem to be a highly organized society. They're prone to at least emotional outbursts. And France appears to be prone to emotional outbursts, but maybe they do this... <laughs> And nobody actually gets hurt. Well, the last time I was in France, I was in the south of France uh, during mm -hmm. some of the summer months. And so I thought, oh, I'll avoid all the strikes and craziness that goes on in Paris. And <laughs> so I was taking a train from uh, France to Italy. And, of course, there was strikes. So the train was delayed and delayed massively. So yeah, there's no avoiding it at this time. I've got to uh, move the topic again a little bit. I'm wondering, are the rats leaving the sinking ship? Are the thieves falling out? And what I'm talking about is there's a new report out. Well, the Saudis are responding. Our government said we're going to turn that 28 pages of secret information on 9-11 loose. I don't think that's a definite 
I don't think that's a certainty yet. The Senate has voted for it and or the House. One of them has. I'm not sure that the other one has. I don't know that the pages are actually going to be released yet, but they're threatening to do it. And the Saudis are threatening to cancel, to sell off their U.S. bonds. And here we have from SGT report, they have what they claim to be a bombshell report. Saudis hit back. The U.S. blew up the World Trade Center to create war on terror. That's the headline. And they are arguing the Saudis are releasing evidence, or at least opinion, where they say this thing was, this thing was all done by the United States. And, and the CIA and the, and the Jewish and Israel's Mossad, um, are the rats kind of, uh, are the thieves falling out right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good way of putting it. In fact, we covered this uh, this very story in the latest edition of New World Next Week, my weekly interview series with James Evan Pilato, MeteorMonarchy.com. We just recorded that, and so it'll go up later today, my time. And uh, in that, basically, I said that this uh, is shows that 9-11 continues to be simply a political football. And right now, that football is aimed in the game with the Saudis. And we see some of the back and forth going on. This is just a, you know playing out of that. And really, although some people who are on the side of 9-11 truth and trying to expose 9-11 as an inside job might see that type of headline, oh, wow, that's amazing, that's explosive, that's great. But I think ultimately the way this plays out in the propaganda media is going to be, look at those evil, crazy, weirdo Saudis, uh, look at the, the craziness that they're coming up with now, in the exact same way when Ahmadinejad was talking about 9-11 as an inside job at the UN. It's not like that was some sort of breakthrough, amazing, and suddenly so many people woke up to all of the, the problems with the official 9-11 story. All it was was just roll your eyes, oh, this guy's a crazy, you know, we should probably nuke Iran. So I think that's ultimately what this is going to be. It's just going to be more fuel on the fire. And there's definitely a fire raging at this point. It's just a question of whether it will be controlled. The the, the real point uh, here is that that legislation that just got passed um, that allows the lawsuits also yep. uh, had a little backdoor uh, seated by Chuck Schumer um, that basically allows either the Secretary of State or one other person, I forget who it was, maybe the, depart uh, the head of the Department of Justice, to uh, effectively veto any lawsuits before they get to that level. So the the back door has already been slotted in that ultimately they're not going to let it go ahead unless they really want it to go ahead. And if they do, that might be a type of more overt warfare between Saudi and U.S. Do you think this report that the Saudis, from what I understand, this report was published in an English uh, publication. This was published by, written by someone who's associated a, a, a student of of Saudi affairs and whatever. Do you think this is absolutely a real report, or is this is this some kind of hype that we can expect on the Internet? Is this more political, where they are uh, threatening a fantasy rather than actually coming up and playing hardball and saying we're turning this, we're going to turn this information loose? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, again, let's keep in perspective what this is. This is not the Saudi government coming out and saying this yeah. and officially accusing this. This is right. a Saudi legal expert, quote unquote. I don't even know exactly what that means, but is uh, by the name of Katib Al-Shamari writing, a, I, I guess, an op-ed in the Al-Hayat London-based newspaper. Mm -hmm. So exactly. uh, take it for what it's worth. Again, this is just... I, I mean, at the at the very most, you could say maybe the Saudi government is kind of officially sanctioning this behind the scenes as part of this, you know, stab in the back type of politic game that's going on right now. But it's certainly nothing official. It's nothing that's going to 
cause any tectonic, you know, amazing diplomatic moves. Um, uh, it, it's it's uh, so obviously I understand why the story is blowing up and why it's getting a lot of attention, but it's really not quite as big as people want to or are framing it as. Hey, this article I've been reading from it says the decision has been made to throw the Saudis under the bus for the event that has up to this point been blamed on the Muslims. Now, why are we publicly throwing the Saudis under the bus? This is one of the things that makes me wonder about the validity of this report. Mm. I mean, this is not a small thing. This is indication that there is some serious tension, not just a little casual tension, not just a couple of people they normally get along and now they're having a problem. No, there's serious problems, if this is all true, between the Saudis and the United States. Right. And they're letting this get out of control, and it'll be to both sides' detriment if this story turns out to be true. So why right. is this happening? Yeah. No, I, I would I would make a, a slight amendment to that. I don't think this is the U.S. throwing the Saudis under the bus. I think this is the U.S. threatening to throw the Saudis under the bus. And at the point well, where they allow lawsuits to proceed against the Saudi government or they, they release the 28 pages, that type of thing might actually be the throwing under the bus. But at this point, it's still, I think, just kind of, you know, a covert warfare, I guess you could call in some way that's going on, or at least tension that's playing out right now. And obviously, I mean, this is being supported by, you know, 60 Minutes and everyone putting out these pieces about Saudi Arabia and 9-11. I think this has to be seen as as the the, the threat, the, the stick part of the carrot and stick equation that the U.S. is using in its relationship with Saudi Arabia, which, as we've talked about before, is being threatened and tested right now as the Saudi Arabian government has its qualms with the U.S. and the way it has or hasn't acted in Syria. And we have this oil geopolitical warfare that's going on with the Saudi-caused oil crash, price crash having affected the U.S. oil producers. And we have uh, the Saudis turning to China and Russia as more partners in uh, selling their oil. So there's a lot of different things going on here. And I think this is just the U.S. You know, trying to, to let the Saudis know, hey, we can, we can bring you crashing down at any time. But I don't think they're actually doing it at this point. Well, it makes me wonder, what are the chances of what we're listening to is the equivalent of a false flag story? Mm. I mean, is this really coming from Saudi Arabia, or is this another source who's trying to stir up trouble between the United yeah. States and the Saudis? Yeah. I mean, there may be a third force in here that's that's behind this that uh, has not yet been clearly identified. Right. That's always something we should keep in mind, because, again, even the ostensible government of a country is not necessarily the people running the country. In the case of Saudi Arabia, of course, it is the the House of Saud. So the government and the... The, uh, the ruling power are one and the same for the most part. But then even then there are splits within the, the House of Saud and there are um, there are people who are more aligned or less aligned with the uh, Al Qaeda and other groups like that. So, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, again, this could be some some of that going on in the background. And it's difficult to really piece that out from the outside um, other than to say we should take a step back from stories like this and try to analyze it from 17 different directions rather than the mm. straightforward way that it's being presented to us. Can't just automatically believe what you hear or read or whatever. Yeah. Um, it requires, you've got to take time to discern on your own and try to figure out what is the truth. And that's uh, an obligation for each of us. Uh, something along these lines, again, whether the rats are leaving the sinking ship. Um, got an article by Jerome Corsi. 
And it's the headline is Trump's Vince Foster attack backed by new evidence. And the subheadline is how could a suicide victim be found with two bullet wounds? Hmm. And Trump is, or excuse me, of course, Trump is saying, I don't know exactly what Trump has said about the Vince Foster suicide, but he stirred it up and apparently said this may be, may not have been suicide. And people are complaining that this is just a right-wing conspiracy theory. But Corsi says there is reason to believe that there was a second wound that's undescribed as a small, as a, uh, uh, one of them was on the right side of his neck, which paramedics described as a small caliber bullet hole. Uh, if, if Vince Foster was shot twice and we don't have a suicide, and this is coming out while Hillary is running for the presidency. Is this just more entertainment, or are we looking at something that's going to, again, are the rats leaving the sinking ship? Yes. Well, again, this is another thing that I don't think we're ever going to see prosecuted in a court. I don't think it's ever going to come to that. I'd love for it to, to come to that stage, but I don't think it will. But it could, could certainly be a political strategy to try to undermine the Clinton um, campaign. And, uh, and to be specific, what Trump actually did was say, I'm not going to talk about Vince Foster. I haven't looked into it deeply, but there are people out there who say that okay. he was murdered. So <laughs> it was a way of bringing it up without, quote unquote, bringing it up. Um, but uh, it, it's I mean, it's good. This is the exact type of thing, uh, stuff that should be dredged up in any attempt by Clinton to get into the White House. And so it is good to see this and the Bill Clinton rape accusations coming out to light and being at least given some sort of press. I think that's a, that, that is to the good. And on that note, if people are interested in it, I did a episode of my podcast a few years back called Meet the Clintons, where I talked about the Vince Foster case and a lot of their other scandals as well, which uh, I might be time to dust out and maybe feature on my front page again as the uh-huh. election cycle heats up here. We have about, what have we got left? Two and a half minutes. Um, what's happening with the fires in Canada? Are they a function, are aggravated by the, by the fracking, uh, the oil production of, uh, the, by means of fracking? Are they strictly due to the drought? What's happening? That is an excellent question. And for once, I don't have an answer. I can't even mm. pretend to begin. Uh-huh. To, uh, How long have I been trying to do that? <laughs> I don't now. know. I- <laughs> it's been a year. I'm going to get my face yeah. in the newspaper somewhere. <laughs> I haven't looked into this issue enough to be able to say where it comes from, but I can at least direct people to one protect potential source. Uh, there's an excellent uh, YouTube channel uh, out there called uh, uh, Press for Truth. It's hosted by Dan Dix. Of, uh, he's from Canada. And I saw they recently had a video up about the Fort McMurray fire and what caused the Fort McMurray fire. I haven't watched it yet, so I don't know. I'll have to hold off on giving you an answer to that. All right, last, uh, we have a little over a minute left. State Department rules Hillary created security risks. Uh, This is from Ms. Shedlock again. When's the FBI criminal charges? Uh, Headline, is Hillary going to escape being indicted? 
Again, what are the I, odds? Cannot, I don't think anybody it. can yeah. answer that question. Right, what right, are right, the right. odds right now? How do you how do you see this? I can't envision it happening. I mean, I would give ninety nine to one against her being indicted. I would give a hundred to zero against her actually being convicted. Um, so that's maybe that's my cynicism. I would love to be proven wrong, um, but it is. <laughs> Again, as I say, like the Vince Foster or something like that, I don't expect it's going to be uh, brought into court. But at any rate, it will be in the court of public opinion and hopefully increasingly so over the next the, the coming months. Um, so I, I certainly don't think Obama's Justice Department is ultimately going to proceed with uh, criminal proceedings against Hillary Clinton while she's running for the presidency. But the, the public knows what's up. And look on the comment section of any of these sites and you see military officers saying, if I had done anything, even approaching this on yeah. one one thousandth of the scale, I would have ended up in the brig. I would have been prosecuted for this. Um, mm -hmm. But look, the, you know, the, the head of the State Department can get away with it. It's ridiculous. And people realize it's ridiculous. We're going to have to let it go at that. Thank you, James. Always a pleasure talking to you on the program. That's James Corbett from thecorbettreport.com. I'm Alfred Haddock. This is Financial Survival. Melody and I will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, Frank, the producer, and James Corbett. Good night. I work all night. I work all day to pay the bills I have to pay. There never seems to be a single penny left for me. Left you fast. In my dream, I have a plan. If I got me a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work at all. I'd pull around and have a heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. AVR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Studies 
have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Dog gotta let it run. 
Good evening, all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is Wednesday, May 25th, 2016, and uh, it's about seven and a half minutes after 8 p.m. If that's when it is where you are, we are live, which means you can participate in the show if you'd like. 800-932-1980 is the call-in number if you'd like to uh, just participate through, you know, texting, or maybe not even participate, just, uh, you know, socialize with other folks. You can go to our chat room, which is located at our website, theamericanvoice.com. And uh, you'll see the chat link over on the left-hand side. Click it, pick a name, pick a password, and you are in there. Unless, of course, you don't have, uh, you already have a name and a password. I mean, you might already have a name and not a password. But anyway, if you have that, then just put that in there. You can also contact me directly through Yahoo Instant Messenger. My screen name is AVRN Talk. All righty, hang on one second. I got to open this door. It's getting a bit. Warm in here. All right, there we go. All right, let's get to some things and stuff. Hello to everybody who is in the chat room. Okay, and hello to my cat, who just came in and jumped up here and uh, apparently thought I was talking to him. His name is Fred, by the way. <laughs> anyway, there's Star Fred. All right, let's uh, get to it here. Well, let's start with something that, you know, is not at all. I have another story also that is not related to this one particularly, but it just shows the the hypocrisy of the left. You know, and that's one thing that the right, you know, the right has its own problems, really. I mean, you know, uh, the right is is really not the best with, uh, say, civil rights, uh, 
constitutional rights, uh, you know, what, what's that, you know, I only say civil rights because, you know, that seems to be something people understand, uh, constitutional rights, uh, the only thing they figure, oh, you're one of them. Well, yes, I am one of them. I am one of the people, okay? And uh, you should be too, folks, because, oh, you know, only because the alternative is uh, far worse. But here we have Katie Couric. Yeah, the little baby doll that was on the news. Oh, she's so cute. And oh, isn't she smart? Oh, yeah, sure. Isn't she a prostitute? Isn't that sweet? And then she got kicked to the curb. And now she's back. Yeah, the makers of the new Katie Couric documentary on gun violence. Oh, yeah. They uh, they pull another, you know, another one of their things that they do all the time, and they just uh, cut up the video to make the people being interviewed, which were pro-gun people, look like idiots. You know, they do this on a regular basis, okay? they What they did this time was they asked a question, well, without background checks, how do you keep felons and crazy people and whoever else from having guns. And then, instead of playing it straight through like they asked it and the people answering and having, you know, many of the people on the, the panel had many answers. How? Well, instead, what they did was they showed the group just sitting there for like four or five seconds. just And on TV, that's a long time. Let's count it out. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five Mississippi, six. Wow, you look like a deer in the headlights about four, around four seconds, don't you? You don't have an answer. Ah, oh, I guess I gotcha. But that's not really what happened. It was editing. And then the producer of this, this fraud propaganda shill documentary says, oh, we didn't mean anybody to look stupid or anything. We were just trying to give the crowd a chance to think about that question. Uh, do you really believe that? Wow. And, you know, a lot of you folks out there will say, oh, well, you know, we know. Well, you know, you know, but you know what? A lot of people who watch stuff like this, they think that is what happened. They think that is the truth. Now, on the other side of this, where is this, or has it been scrubbed off of here? Because, you know, I, I've got news for you. Everybody talks about... Oh, you know, drudge this and drudge that. Drudge is the uh, the mover and the shaker of uh, all things, uh, you know, Internet alternative. And that ain't true. Uh, drudge scrubs things sometimes quicker than anybody else, okay? Well, ex-chief of staff, okay... And I, I I don't see this here, but uh, which means it's gone. But I remember because I did read the whole story. 
uh, chief of ex chief of staff for Hillary Clinton, uh, some black woman I forget her name, and I, and I don't mean that some black woman derogatorily. Uh, the derogatory part is she was Hillary Clinton's chief of staff. I don't care what color she is. She's a dirtbag if she worked for Hillary Clinton, okay? I, I really don't care if she's a woman or she's black or purple or from Mars. I, I don't care, okay? You work for Hillary Clinton, there's something seriously wrong with you. You have a serious, serious depletion of morals somewhere along your line. Well, uh, she uh, got interviewed. She was uh, not interviewed. She was deposed in a lawsuit. And uh, they are now suing uh, Judicial Watch, who has done a FOIA, to release the video. And they're fighting that because why? Oh, you're going to love this. This is rich. After the Katie Couric thing, after all the lies and deceptions the media has pulled on the people, after Fedbook got caught scrubbing off conservative views, you know, this goes on and on and on, folks. They say... This liberal Hillary Clinton chief of staff says, oh, we don't want that video released because those conservatives out there will edit the tape to make it look bad. Yeah. Now, nobody has done that yet, but they're saying, oh, well, we can't release it because they could do that. Basically, they're telling the court, well, that's what we would do, so we're figuring this is what they're going to do, too. I mean, it's sickening, isn't it? And, of course, you know, the court hasn't ruled yet, but I'm sure they will rule in favor of Hillary Clinton and her, her ex-chief uh, of staff's privacy issues. You know what, folks? We really need to redefine what, who, who does privacy apply to. Because these are the courts that say, oh, you know what, when you get in your car and you go anywhere off of your property, you have no expectation of privacy. Matter of fact, if you park your car in your own driveway, and say your driveway is only, you know, 20 feet long or 10 feet long, you know, like so many developments have, subdivisions, you know, they have, uh, they've got their garage, and then they've got this little 10-foot thing that people call their driveway, and then it's the street. Well, guess what? If you park your car there, you also now have no expectation of privacy. You've got to put that sucker in your garage with the doors shut before you have any expectation of privacy. Yet, Public officials doing public business for the public trust? Their criminal activities are shielded by privacy? Oh, man, you know, this is just a little, uh, little much to take, don't you think? Now, get this, though. The FBI... Okay, the nation's supposed law enforcement agency has never questioned Hillary Clinton yet, okay? But the State Department has said that 
Hillary Clinton's uh, use of a private email server was a violation of the rules and inappropriate. Yes, the State Department says that, but all the FBI's thinking about interviewing her, maybe. The State Department's Inspector General on Wednesday Okay. All right, anyway, uh, I, I got things I can't really read just yet because they're in... Anyway, exclusive uh, State Department Inspector General on Wednesday sharply criticized Hillary Clinton's exclusive use of a private email server while she was Secretary of State, saying that she had not sought permission to use it and would ha not have received that permission if she had asked. Well... What was Hillary Clinton? Didn't she say it's better to apologize than to ask for permission? This is her this is her modus operandi. This is her MO. This is what she does. She just goes ahead and does things she knows is wrong and she figures if she gets caught, why by God she's Hillary Clinton and she can just say, Oh golly, I'm sorry, what does it matter anyway? And go ahead and get away with it because she's been getting away with murder for forty years. So why wouldn't she think she could get away with anything? This is a straight Forward, cold, stone cold psychopath, this woman. I'm telling you. I mean, she makes Bill Clinton look like the good guy, all right? And that's pretty tough to do because he is a psychopath, too. Just not as big a psychopath. And honestly, I'll tell you, and I've said this even when Bill Clinton was president, I said this. I think Hillary Clinton's the one with the brains. I think Hillary Clinton is the criminal mastermind behind those two. I think Bill is just a drooling dog looking to hump anything that's walking by and figures, hey, this is really cool being president, really cool being governor, really cool being famous. Chicks, chicks dig that, you know, and this is really cool. Yeah, sure, Hillary, whatever. We'll do that. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's what I think. Oh, and every once in a while, Bill might ask, hey, how much money do we have? You know, but that's about it. That's the way I view it. And I could be wrong, and I don't really care if I'm wrong or right. They're both psychopathic criminals. Okay. Let's see here. The, the, the report delivered to members of Congress undermined some of Mrs. Clinton's previous statements. Ah, defending her use of the server and handled her Republican critics, including the party's presumptive nominee for president, Donald J. Trump, new fodder to attack her just as she closes in on the Democratic nomination. The inspector general found that Mrs. Clinton had an obligation to discuss using her personal email account to conduct official business with department officials, but... That, contrary to her own claims, that the department allowed the arrangement, there was no evidence that she had requested or received approval for it. Again, we go back. Well, it's just easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. And 
and while other senior officials had used personal email accounts for official business, including Colin Powell when he was secretary, the rules made clear by the time she became the nation's top diplomat that using a private server for official business was neither allowed nor encouraged because of significant security risks, which, of course, we know Grucifer is in custody and cutting a deal because he hacked into Hillary Clinton's email server long ago. Mrs. Clinton's use of a private server was known by some officials beyond her closest aides, but no one in the State Department told her directly to use the department's official email. When two officials in the meeting, yeah, who's going to tell her? She's the Secretary of State. She's the boss. So somebody's going to walk in and say, hey, listen, boss, you're breaking the law here, and you better start using the company server, or, uh, you know, I'm going to blow the whistle on you, and you'll go to jail. How do you like that? Or, as my theme song says, what do you think about that? Well, you see, now, I may be foolish enough to do something like that, or crazy enough, or whatever enough to do something like that, and you may, too. But you see, the officials at the State Department are government employees who are well aware of Hillary Clinton's past. And you don't walk into a room with Hillary Clinton and tell her, uh, you'll do this or you'll go to jail. And I'm telling you, now, uh, you could end up dead in the park, okay? Or... Head in an airplane crash with a bullet in the back of your head. Hmm. But of course, the FBI hasn't seen fit to question her yet. I wonder why. Hmm. Yeah. What a lying sack Comey is. This guy is a disgrace. I'm telling you, the FBI is a disgrace. From their lab to everything. How many scandals have they had? You can't trust anything coming out of them. They might as well not investigate it. They could screw up anything. Well, Trump's all over Clinton, too, which is great. I tell you, if nothing else, this election cycle is going to be fun to watch. And I just really hope that, you know... Donald Trump, because see now, okay, all the big players are coming in with all their big money to support the Republican nominee. And they're also giving money to Hillary Clinton, too, because they play both sides. And that really ought to be. I mean, honestly, this is one of the biggest problems we have in politics. Not that we don't have a lot of problems, but we have one major problem, and that is... The inflow of money. So what do you do? You just tell everybody, look, you can't give any money to these criminals. Well, that's not. You know, we do have free speech, and, you you know, you should be allowed to financially support a candidate that you are for, you know, and all that, at least to an extent. But Aladas came up with, I think, a brilliant simple plan and that's what makes it so brilliant is because it's simple it's very simple it's brilliant 
and it would do a lot. Now, I'm not saying this would fix all our problems in politics, but it would certainly go a long way to making things a whole lot better. And that is, if you cannot vote for somebody, you cannot donate any money to them. Yeah. So, in your congressional district, your congressman can only accept money from people who actually live in that congressional district. And I would make it registered voters. You gotta be you gotta be registered to vote because you've gotta be able to be able now you don't have to go out and vote, but you have to be able to vote for this guy. And maybe you could, you know, maybe I don't want to register to vote. Maybe I just want to give this guy money. Okay, fine. But I do live here, and I am a, you know, air breather and all this stuff. And, okay, so maybe we could have some uh, exemptions for that. And say, okay, well, let's see your electric bill or whatever. Let You know, let's make sure you live here. Right? But that excludes corporations. Because corporations do not get to vote. Now, all the employees for the corporation, if the corporation is in that congressional district, every employee that lives in that congressional district, or, you know, every employee that can vote for that congressman can donate money to them. But, of course, there's already rules that a corporation, because this is exactly what they would try to do, they'd say, okay, fine, uh... Hey, everybody who works here, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to give you a, you know, a, whatever the limit is, $2,100 bonus, and you've got to donate 2000 of that to this candidate. That means you get to keep 100 bucks. Woohoo! And, and, and that's your reward for donating this to them. But you see, you're already not allowed to do that. Okay? You're already, that's already not allowed. So that wouldn't be allowed either. In other words, corporations do not get to participate in elections. Their employees do. Their CEO gets to vote wherever he is a uh, registered voter. So does the board. Senators, hey, everybody in the state can donate money to the guy because everybody in the state can vote for the senator. President, everybody in the whole country can donate to that guy. But you know what? As far as I know, China and Saudi Arabia aren't allowed to vote, so they don't get to donate. See how simple? See how many problems that would take care of? And the whole idea... You know, of super PACs. You know, I don't know how to handle that, to tell you the truth. Because on one side, I realize, look, a group of people can get together and say, we like this guy. And you know what? I just don't think anybody who can't vote should be able to donate. And I don't think a super PAC's allowed to vote either, as far as I'm concerned. As far as I know. Anyway, Trump was warning now of Clinton's catastrophic uh, refugee plans. And that corporate America, now you see, here's the thing, Hillary Clinton has started her little squawk fest, or is it a shriek fest? I don't know, but, 
you know, listening to her talk is annoying at best about how, uh, you know, Donald Trump is, uh, he's a corporate guy and he's given money to this and he just loves these big bankers and he's dealt with them and da 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 da. Really? This is coming from a woman who has been paid $21,667,000 uh, in speaking fees by corporations. Really? Uh,. How much money has Donald Trump been paid by corporations to come and talk to them? Oh, that's right. This is easy. Zero? Yeah. Hey, and no doubt Donald Trump has uh, dealt with bankers at Goldman Sachs and all the big scumbag bankers, you know. I mean, no doubt. And, you know, hey, I'm not saying the guy's not just as big a dirtbag as they are, but he's a different kind of dirtbag. He was a business dirtbag, a real estate dirtbag, which, by the way, real estate agents are not one of my favorite people. That's why I keep referring to him as a used car salesman, because really, real estate salesmen and uh, used car salesmen are very much the same. Real estate guys seem to make a lot more money, though. That's the only difference. But uh, other than that, you know, no, but... The thing is, there's a difference between, you know, dealing with people that are dirtbags in business and being paid off by those dirtbags to do their business for them. So there's a big difference there. It's a fine line, but there's a big difference. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'll uh, lead off with a story. U.S. Marshals sent wrong woman to jail where she was strip-searched and shackled. Yeah, you know, and uh, uh, we'll go into break playing the new national anthem.
Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water.
Yeah. 
All right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's Wednesday, May 25th, 2016. It's about 845 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. And if that's when it is where you're at, we're live, 800-932-1980. Or go to the chat room located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com, and uh, you can... uh, Go in the chat room there. You'll see the link over on the left-hand side. Click it. Pick a name. Pick a password. And, uh, you know, you're in there, and you're uh, you're chatting away. And everybody in there, well, not everybody in there, but a couple people in there were correctly identifying the songs, which, of course, the first one uh, should be the new national anthem. Uh, and it is Ozzy Osbourne doing Crazy Train. I mean, hey, Ozzy was, uh, you know, Barbara Bush's favorite rock guy, so a favorite musician. So, hey, you know, and Crazy Train certainly does, uh, you know, suit this country, huh? The second one there was uh, my theme song for, uh, I don't know, a few months, uh, Don Henley. I will not go quietly, and they got it, of course. Anyway. Uh, let's see. Everybody's got an opinion about music. It's too bad that most people in the room's opinion is wrong. <laughs> anyway, let's get to the story here. When a team of vested up and gunned up U.S. Marshals in Tennessee apprehended Tracy Hinson and began interrogating her about selling 10 Xanax tablets in 2012, she gave them answers that made it clear they had the wrong woman. The marshal in charge told Hinton he needed to make a call. Now, wait a minute. Okay. You have U.S. marshals all geared up to question somebody about 10 Xanax tablets? 10? Really? Wow, boy, thank goodness you guys are on the job. Boy, whoa. well, that justifies having the U.S. Marshals out there protecting us from those 10 Xanax pills that are floating around illegally. Whoo, boy, do I, oh, man, I feel so much safer now. How about you? Well, except for, well, it's the wrong person. And it just gets stupider after that. Stupider as far as, Illegal detainment, illegal imprisonment, uh, you know, and all that good stuff. After he went and made a call, he came back and told me that he had to do what the paper said he had to do. He asked if I ever lived in Mount Pleasant. I said no, said Hinson. They took me to Dreyer County Jail, and I was fully processed there. And they intend, and they, that included being shackled and strip-searched. They said they were holding me until Lawrence County could come and pick me up that night. Now, wait a minute. So, wait wait a minute here. So, there's 10 illegal Xanax pills that have been out of the box somewhere. And they come and say, hey, do you know anything about these Xanax tablets? No. Did you ever live here? No. All right, we're arresting you. The questioning's over. So what this tells me is questioning is just BS for we're here to arrest you. Remember that. Oh, we're just here to question you. Oh, okay, but if you set one foot on my property, I'm going to kill you all. How about that? 
Yeah, armed trespassers are shot on sight. No questions. See, I'm not going to question you. I don't have to question you. Look at you. No, see, what, and and during uh, Jay's show earlier today, he had a story about some punk cop all tattooed up, made some guy crawl on his belly, and then shot him anyway? Okay, all right, well, if that's how it's going to be, that then that's how it's going to be. Get ready, boys. Get ready, boys, because I ain't got no stinking warrant, and I don't want to ask you any stinking questions. I don't need to ask you any questions. Your actions have answered all my questions. Now, there's nothing left for you to do but die. Or, hey, maybe you kill me. Maybe do, maybe don't. But you know what? You're going to have to go for it. In other words, you might be able to take my life, but you're going to have to fight me for it. And you know what, Americans... You need to get the same attitude. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't care what the government says. You come to take my life, and you know what? You're all geared up in uh, body armor and automatic weapons and, uh, you know, Nazi helmets and the rest of the gear. Oh, I'm, I'm figuring you're here to take my life. Well, okay, then you're going to have to fight me for it. Maybe you win, maybe you won't. But you're going to have to do it. Because I am not crawling on my belly for you. Ever. But apparently, you know, that's what Americans do now. And, you know, this, in all fairness, is a woman here. Unfortunately for Hinson, officials from Lawrence County didn't arrive until late on Saturday, a full day after being arrested. During the time of being incarcerated, a frightened Hinson said she tried to think of how she was in this predicament, but simply could come up with nothing. Once Hinson arrived at Lawrence County Jail with a $5,000 bond, see, they knew. What kind of a jerk judge puts a $5,000 bond on somebody they know is not the right person? That's why, see, I don't care. You can wave your little warrant all up and down in the air. I got a warrant. I got a judge's signature. I don't care. I don't care. His signature means nothing to me anymore. When judges can do things like this, they mean nothing. You have lost your authority, okay? You have no jurisdiction. You are nothing but a common criminal. And judge, you better hope your armed thugs dispose of me. Because if they don't, guess where my next stop is? I'm telling you, folks. The, this is war. They have declared war on you and me and every other American War! You understand that? Oh, I have it written down. Oh, I got a judge's signature. Yeah? A $5,000 bond on a woman they know isn't the right one and they don't give a damn? Her husband, Kenny, was not far behind and was able to arrange for her to be bonded out of jail at 11.40 p.m. on Saturday night. The cost was $536 
for the bail bondsman, something Hinson hopes at the very least to recoup. Oh, at the very least recoup? You see what a bunch of sissified little girly men we've got running around in this country? Oh, well, gee, honey, sorry about the incarceration and the strip search. Uh, you know, uh, and gee, boy, golly, I hope I get my $500 back. Oh, I'd be getting my $500 back, and I know where I'd be getting it from, too. One of these days, you are going to screw around with the wrong guy, like happened in California with my personal hero. Uh, I don't remember his first name, but I think his last name was Donner. Yeah, he had you bunch of little sissies running around the whole state of California shooting girls delivering newspapers because you were so terrified that it might be him. Because you know why? He had enough of your crap, and he decided, oh, yeah, well, instead of you hunting me, hey, I got an idea. Why don't I run around hunt you? This is going to be easy, seeing as how <laughs> you wear uniforms and stuff. Oh, this is going to be piece of cake. You know, look, I got nothing. I got no problem with police doing their jobs. But anymore, you don't get the benefit of the doubt. There is no benefit of the doubt. I consider you the criminal. Right off the bat, you want somebody to show up in court. I don't know, maybe call him on the phone and say, hey, uh, you know, we got a warrant here. But uh, why don't you come on down and, uh, you know, uh, 9 o'clock in the morning and present yourself to the judge and explain yourself to him and all that. Why don't you do that? And then, you know what, if you actually get the call, you talk to the person, I don't mean leaving a message on a record or something. You, you know, you really actually called the people and said that. And if they don't show up, fine. Send somebody to the house. But this business about you come fully armed, fine. Well, you're looking for a fight. And you're going to find one. Matter of fact, I got a nice story over here. Uh, let's see, where are we here? Oh, come on. Ah, NATO. Yeah, NATO just attempted to invade Moldova. But guess what? It was thwarted. You know by who? The people. That's right. It's hard to overestimate the value of planning in advance, especially when it comes to getting reservations in popular restaurants and invading countries by military force. In the week of the May 9th Victory Day to significant uh, to Victory Day two. May 9th, Victory Day 2. Okay. Significant failures took place, each one remarkable in its own way. Each event went completely unreported by the Western corporate and government media, but discussed on social media. Uh, let's see. In the following three weeks after the incident with the USS Florida, while Russia was preparing for Victory Day celebrations, and all eyes were on Moscow, attention of Ukrainians was fully concentrated on the visit of Vic, uh, Victoria Newland 
to Kiev on April 26th, allegedly to discuss the implementation of the Minsk II agreement and the future elections in uh, Donsk and Lugansk republics. Boy, I'm probably butchering those. It's not intentional, but hey. I'm not going to learn Russian just to uh, read an article. Since the day when President Putin said that the republics can have their elections anytime they want, the question of these elections ceased to be a subject of blackmail toward the Kremlin. It appeared that the true reason for Newland's visit could be located to west of Kiev rather than east. Uh, let's see. Just recently, Robert D. Kaplan a former Straff uh, Wars chief geopolitical analyst and currently a senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. The, these are like complete neocon uh, perpetual war organizations. Okay, published a book in Europe's shadow where he lays out a plan to reunite Romania with its lost province of Moldova. Newland visited Moldova back in January with the task to coerce Moldova's government and its oligarchs to change the country's constitution provision of neutrality. Before, Yeah, we don't like neutral countries. No, 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 no. Before she left, she gave a short speech at the American Embassy in, Bu- in Bucharest after a private dinner with PM Silovs uh, and President Klaus. We powerfully support the desire of the people in Moldova to have responsible leaders who can implement reforms. This is the best way to assure the future of Moldova, Romania, and the United States in conjunction with NATO. Have support programs in place to assure the security of Moldova, but the government has to work to implement these programs. Moldova is one of the poorest countries in Eastern Europe, and its economy heavily relies on Russia. Okay, I'm not going to go through the things there. Everyone understands that a NATO membership will cut all economic ties with Russia, including jobs, and it will turn Moldova into a failed state. Or, in the CIA doublespeak, the country would stop being vulnerable to Russian pressure. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently, the failure of Moldova as a state and its disappearance as a nation is also what the EU wants. On January 6th, new Moldovan ambassador to Germany was presenting his credentials when, out of the blue, the German president asked the new ambassador what the procedure was for Republic of Moldova to formally unite with Romania. Well... Well, let's see. I, this is a very lengthy. This goes on and on. And we're not going to get to the actual invasion uh, tonight, but it's an interesting story, and it goes on, and it was never in the news because it shows the United States as what it is. Okay, a perpetual war, world dictatorship. Folks, you want to see the new world order? It's the United States government. You want to see the one world government? It lives in Washington, D.C. It has subsidiaries in New York City called the United Nations. You want an enemy? Look to Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening, folks. Heard it through the grapevine, my new neighbor don't like my big red barn. A 47 Ford bullet holes in the door broke down motor in the front yard. <laughs> I gotta have a mind to paint a plywood sign and nail it up on a knotty pine tree. Saying I was here first, this is my piece of dirt and your rambling don't rattle me.
Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Constitution has no inherent authority or obligation. It has no authority or obligation at all, unless there's a contract between man and man. And it does not so much as even purport to be a contract between persons now existing. It purports, at most, to be only a contract between persons living 80 years ago. This essay was written in 1869. And it can be supposed to have been a contract then only between persons who had already come to years of discretion so far as to be competent to make reasonable and obligatory contracts. Furthermore, we know, historically, that only a small portion, even of the people then existing, were consulted on the subject, or asked, or permitted, to express either their consent or dissent in any formal manner. Those persons, if any, who did give their consent formally, are all dead now. Most of them have been dead 40, 50, 60, or 70 years. And the Constitution, so far, was their contract died with them. They had no natural power or right to make it obligatory upon their children. It is not only plainly impossible in the nature of things that they could bind their posterity, but they did not even attempt to bind them. That is to say, the instrument does not purport to be an agreement between anybody but the people then existing, nor does it either expressly or impliedly assert any right, power, or disposition on their part to bind anybody but themselves. Let us see. Its language is, we, the people of the United States, that is, the people then existing in the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. It is plain in the first place that this language as an agreement purports to be only what it at most really was. That is to say, a contract between the people then existing, and, of necessity, binding as a contract only upon those then existing. In the second place, the language neither expresses nor implies that they had any intention or desire, nor that they imagined that they had any right or power to bind their posterity to live under it. It does not say that their posterity will, shall, or must live under it. 
It only says, in effect, that their hopes and motives in adopting it were that it might prove useful to their posterity as well as to themselves by promoting their union, safety, tranquility, liberty, etc. Suppose an agreement were entered into in this form. We, the people of Boston, agree to maintain a fort on Governor's Island to protect ourselves and our posterity against invasion. This agreement, as an agreement, would clearly bind nobody but the people then existing. Secondly, it would assert no right, power, or disposition on their part to compel their posterity to maintain such a fort. It would only indicate that the supposed welfare of their posterity was one of the motives that induced the original parties to enter into the agreement. When a man, man says he is building a house for himself and his posterity, he does not mean to be understood as saying that he has any thought of binding them, nor is it to be inferred that he is so foolish as to imagine that he has any right or power to bind them to live in it. So far as they are concerned, he only means to be understood as saying that his hopes and motives in building it are that they, or at least some of them, may find it for their happiness to live in it. So when a man says he is planting a tree for himself and his posterity, he does not mean to be understood as saying that he has any thought of compelling them, nor is it to be inferred that he is such a simpleton as to imagine that he has any right or power to compel them to eat the fruit. So far as they are concerned, he only means to say that his hopes and motives in planting the tree are that its fruit may be agreeable to them. So it was with those who originally adopted the Constitution. Whatever may have been their personal intentions, the legal meaning of their language, so far as their posterity was concerned, simply was that their hopes and motives in entering into the agreement were that it might prove useful and acceptable to their posterity, that it might promote their union, safety, tranquility, and welfare, and that it might tend to secure to them the blessings of liberty. The language does not assert, nor at all imply, any right, power, or disposition on the part of the original parties to the agreement to compel their posterity to live under it. If they had intended to bind their posterity to live under it, they should have said that their object was not to secure to them the blessings of liberty, but to make them slaves of them. For if their posterity are bound to live under it, they are nothing less than the slaves of their foolish, tyrannical, and dead grandfathers. It cannot be said that the Constitution formed the people of the United States for all time into a corporation. It does not speak of the people as a corporation, but as individuals. A corporation does not describe itself as we, nor as people, nor as ourselves. Nor does a corporation in legal language have any posterity. It supposes itself to have, and speaks of itself as having, perpetual existence as a single individuality. Moreover, no body of men, existing at any one time, have the power to create a perpetual corporation. A corporation can become practically perpetual only by the voluntary accession of new members, as the old ones die off. But for this voluntary accession of new members, the corporation necessarily dies with the death of those who originally composed it. Legally speaking, therefore, there is in the Constitution nothing that professes or attempts to bind the posterity of those who established it. If, then, those who established the Constitution had no power to bind and did not attempt to bind their posterity, the question arises whether their posterity have bound themselves. If they have done so, they can have done so in only one or both of these two ways. That is to say, by voting and paying taxes. By Sanders Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 2. Let us consider these two matters, voting and tax paying, separately, and first the voting.
All the voting that has ever taken place under the Constitution has been of such a kind that it not only did not pledge the whole people to support the Constitution, but it did not even pledge any one of them to do so, as the following considerations show. 1. In the very nature of things, the act of voting could bind nobody but the actual voters. But owing to the property qualifications required, it is probable that, during the first 20 or 30 years under the Constitution, not more than one-tenth, fifteenth, or perhaps twentieth of the whole population, black and white, men, women, and minors, were permitted to vote. Consequently, so far as voting was concerned, not more than one-tenth, fifteenth, or twentieth of those then existing could have incurred any obligation to support the Constitution. At the present time, it is probable that not more than one-sixth of the whole population are permitted to vote. Consequently, so far as voting is concerned, the other five-sixths can have given no pledge that they will support the Constitution. Two. Of the one-sixth that are permitted to vote, probably not more than two-thirds, about one-ninth of the whole population, have usually voted. Many never vote at all. Many vote only once in two, three, five, or ten years in periods of great excitement. No one, by voting, can be said to pledge himself for any longer period than that for which he votes. If, for example, I vote for an officer who is to hold his office for only one year, I cannot be said to have thereby pledged myself to support the government beyond that term. Therefore, on the ground of actual voting, it probably cannot be said that more than one-ninth or one-eighth of the whole population are usually under any pledge to support the Constitution. Three, it cannot be said that by voting a man pledges himself to support the Constitution unless the act of voting be a perfectly voluntary one on his part. Yet the act of voting cannot properly be called a voluntary one on the part of any very large number of persons who do vote. It is rather a measure of necessity imposed upon them by others than by one of their own choice. At this point, I repeat what was said in a former number. In truth, in the case of individuals, their actual voting is not to be taken as proof of consent even for the time being. On the contrary, it is to be considered that without his consent having even been asked, a man finds himself environed by a government that he cannot resist, a government that forces him to pay money, render service, and forego the exercise of many of his natural rights under peril of weighty punishments. He sees, too, that other men practice this tyranny over him by the use of the ballot. He sees further that, if he will but use the ballot himself, he has some chance of relieving himself from this tyranny of others by subjecting them to his own. In short, he finds himself, without his consent, so situated that, if he use the ballot, he may become a master. If he does not use it, he must become a slave. And as he has no other alternative than these two, in self-defense, he attempts the former. His case is analogous to that of a man who has been forced into battle, where he must either kill others or be killed himself. Because, to save his own life in battle, a man attempts to take the lives of his opponents, it is not to be inferred that the battle is one of his own choosing. Neither in contest with the ballot, which is a mere substitute for a bullet, because, as his only chance at self-preservation, a man uses a ballot, it is not to be inferred that the contest is one into which he voluntarily entered, that he voluntarily set up all his own natural rights as a stake against those of others, to be lost or won by the mere power of numbers. On the contrary, it is to be considered that in an exigency into which he had been forced by others, and in which no other means of self-defense offered, he, as a matter of necessity, used the only one that was left to him. Doubtless, the most miserable of men, under the most oppressive government in the world, if allowed the ballot, would use it, see any chance of thereby ameliorating their condition. But it would not, therefore, be a legitimate inference that the government itself that crushes them was one which they had voluntarily set up or even consented to. Therefore, a man's voting under the Constitution of the United States is not to be taken as evidence that he ever freely assented to the Constitution, even for the time being. Consequently, we have no proof that any very large portion, even of the actual voters of the United States, ever really involuntarily consented to the Constitution, even for the time being.
Nor can we ever have such proof until every man is left perfectly free to consent or not without thereby subjecting himself or his property to be disturbed or injured by others. As we can have no legal knowledge as to who votes from choice and who from the necessity thus forced upon him, we can have no legal knowledge as to any particular individual that he voted from choice, or, consequently, that by voting he consented or pledged himself to support the government. Legally speaking, therefore, the act of voting utterly fails to pledge any one to support the government fails to prove that the government rests upon the voluntary support of anybody. On general principles of law and reason, it cannot be said that the government has any voluntary supporters at all, till it can be distinctly shown who its voluntary supporters are. 4. As taxation is made compulsory on all, whether they vote or not, a large proportion of those who vote no doubt do so to prevent their own money being used against themselves. When, in fact, they would have gladly abstained from voting if they could thereby have saved themselves from taxation alone, to say nothing of being saved from all the other usurpations and tyrannies of the government. To take a man's property without his consent, and then to infer his consent because he attempts by voting to prevent that property from being used to his injury is a very insufficient proof of his consent to support the Constitution. It is, in fact, no proof at all. As we can have no legal knowledge as to who the particular individuals are, if there are any, who are willing to be taxed for the sake of voting, we can have no legal knowledge that any particular individual consents to be taxed for the sake of voting, or consequently consents to support the Constitution. 5. At nearly all elections, votes are given for various candidates for the same office. Successful candidates cannot properly be said to have voted to sustain the Constitution. They may, with more reason, be supposed to have voted not to support the Constitution, but especially to prevent the tyranny which they anticipate the successful candidate intends to practice upon them on the color of the Constitution, and thereby may reasonably be supposed to have voted against the Constitution itself. This supposition is the more reasonable, inasmuch as such voting is the only mode allowed to them of expressing their dissent to the Constitution. 6. Many votes are usually given for the candidates who have no prospect of success. Those who give such votes may reasonably be supposed to have voted as they did, with a special intention not to support, but to obstruct the execution of the Constitution, and therefore against the Constitution itself. 7. As all the different votes are given secretly by secret ballot, there is no legal means of knowing from the votes themselves who votes for and who against the Constitution. Therefore, voting affords no legal evidence that any particular individual supports the Constitution. And where there can be no legal evidence that any particular individual supports the Constitution, it cannot legally be said that anybody supports it. It is clearly impossible to have any legal proof of the intentions of large numbers of men where there can be no legal proof of the intentions of any particular one of them. 8. There can be no legal proof of any man's intentions in voting. We can only conjecture them. As a conjecture, it is probable that a very large proportion of those who vote do so on this principle, that is to say, that if, by voting, they could but get the government into their own hands, or that of their friends, and use its powers against their opponents, they would then willingly support the Constitution. But if their opponents are to have the power and use it against them, then they would not willingly support the Constitution. In short, men's voluntary support of the Constitution is doubtless, in most cases, wholly contingent upon the question whether, by means of the Constitution, they can make themselves masters or are to be made slaves. Such contingent consent as that is, in law and reason, no consent at all. 9. As everybody who supports the Constitution by voting, if there are or any such, does so secretly by secret ballot, and in a way to avoid all personal responsibility for the act of his agents or representatives, it cannot legally or reasonably be said that anybody at all supports the Constitution by voting. No man can reasonably or legally be said to do such a thing as to assent to or support the Constitution unless he does it openly and in a way to make himself personally responsible for the acts of his agents, so long as they act in the limits of the power he delegates to them. 
10. As all voting is secret by secret ballot, and as all secret governments are necessarily only secret bands of robbers, tyrants, and murderers, the general fact that our government is practically carried on by means of such voting only proves that there is among us a secret band of robbers, tyrants, and murderers whose purpose is to rob, enslave, and, so far as necessary to accomplish their purposes, murder the rest of the people. The simple fact of the existence of such a band does nothing towards proving that the people of the United States or any one of them voluntarily supports the Constitution. For all the reasons that have now been given, voting furnishes no legal evidence as to who the particular individuals are, if there are any, who voluntarily support the Constitution. It therefore furnishes no legal evidence that anybody supports it voluntarily. So far, therefore, as voting is concerned, the Constitution, legally speaking, has no supporters at all. The ostensible supporters of the Constitution, like the ostensible supporters of most other governments, are made up of three classes, that is to say, one, knaves who see in the government an instrument which they can use for their own aggrandizement and wealth. Two, dupes, a large class, no doubt, each of whom, because he has allowed one voice out of millions in deciding what he may do with his own person and his own property, and because he is permitted to have the same voice in robbing, enslaving, and murdering others, that others have in robbing, enslaving, and murdering himself, is stupid enough to imagine that he's a free man, a sovereign, that this is a free government, a government of equal rights, the best government on earth, and such like absurdities. 3. A class who have some appreciation of the evils of government, but either do not see how to get rid of them, or do not choose to so far sacrifice their private interests as to give themselves seriously and earnestly to the work of making a change. By Sanders Spooner's No Treason, the Constitution of No Authority, Part 3. Payment of taxes, being compulsory, of course furnishes no evidence that any one voluntarily supports the Constitution. 1. It is true that the theory of our Constitution is that all taxes are paid voluntarily. That our government is a mutual insurance company voluntarily entered into by the people with each other. That each man makes a free and purely voluntary contract with all others who are parties to the Constitution. To pay so much money for so much protection, the same as he does with any other insurance company. And that he's just as free not to be protected and not to pay tax as he is to pay a tax and be protected. But this theory of our government is wholly different from the practical fact. The fact is that the government, like a highwayman, says to a man, your money or your life. And many, if not most, taxes are paid under the compulsion of that threat. The government does not indeed waylay a man in a lonely place, spring upon him from the roadside, and holding a pistol to his head proceed to rifle his pockets. But the robbery is nonetheless a robbery on that account, and is far more dastardly and shameful. The highwayman takes solely upon himself the responsibility, danger, and crime of his own act. He does not pretend that he has any rightful claim to your money, or that he intends to use it for your own benefit. He does not pretend to be anything but a robber. He has not required impudence enough to profess to be merely a protector, and that he takes men's money against their will merely to enable him to protect those infatuated travelers who feel perfectly able to protect themselves or who do not appreciate his peculiar system of protection. He is too sensible a man to make such professions as these. Furthermore, having taken your money, he leaves you as you wish him to do. He does not persist in following you on the road against your will, assuming to be your rightful sovereign on account of the protection he has forged you. He does not keep protecting you by commanding you to bow down and serve him, by requiring you to do this and forbidding you to do that, by robbing you of more money as often as, he's, as he finds it for his interest or pleasure to do so, and by branding you as a rebel, a traitor, or an enemy to your country, and shooting you down without mercy if you dispute his authority or resist his demands. He is too much of a gentleman to be guilty of such impostures and insults and villainies as these. 
In short, he does not, in addition to robbing you, attempt to make you either his dupe or his slave. The proceedings of those robbers and murderers who call themselves the government are directly the opposite of these of the single highwaymen. In the first place, they do not, like him, make themselves individually known, or, consequently, take upon themselves personally the responsibility of their acts. On the contrary, they secretly, by secret ballot, designate some one of their number to commit the robbery in their behalf, while they keep themselves practically concealed. They say to the person thus designated, Go to A and B and say to him that the government has need of money to meet the expenses of protecting him and his property. If he presumes to say that he has never contracted with us to protect him, and that he wants none of our protection, say to him that that is our business, and not his. That we choose to protect him whether he desires us to do so or not, and that we demand pay, too, for protecting him. If he dares to inquire who the individuals are, who have thus taken upon themselves the title of the government, and who assume to protect him and demand payment of him, without his having ever made any contract with them, say to him that that, too, is our business, and not his, that we do not choose to make ourselves individually known to him, that we have secretly by secret ballot appointed you, our agent, to give him notice of our demands, and, if he complies with them, to give him in our name a receipt that will protect him against any similar demand for the present year. If he refuses to comply, seize and sell enough of his property to pay not only our demands, but all of your own expenses and trouble beside. If he resists the seizure of his property, call upon the bystanders to help you. Doubtless some of them will prove to be members of our band. If in defending his property he should kill any of our band who are assisting you, capture him at all hazards, charge him in one of our courts with murder, convict him, and hang him. If he should call upon his neighbors or any others who, like him, may be disposed to resist our demands, and they should come in large numbers to his assistance, cry out that they are all rebels and traitors, that our country is in danger. Call upon the commander of our hired murderers. Tell him to quell the rebellion and save the country, cost what it may. Tell him to kill all who resist, though they should be hundreds of thousands, and thus strike terror into all others similarly disposed. See that the work of murder is thoroughly done that we may have no further trouble of this kind hereafter. When these traders shall have thus been taught our strength and our determination, they will be good, loyal citizens for many years, and pay their taxes without a why or a wherefore. It is under such compulsion as this that taxes, so-called, are paid. And how much proof the payment of taxes affords that the people consent to support the government, it needs a further argument to show. Two, still another reason why the payment of taxes applies implies no consent or pledge to support the government, is that the taxpayer does not know and has no means of knowing who the particular individuals are who compose the government. To him, the government is a myth, an abstraction, an incorporality, with which he can make no contract and to which he can give no consent and make no pledge. He knows it only through his pretended agents. The government itself he never sees. He knows indeed by common report that certain persons of a certain age are permitted to vote, and thus to make themselves parts of, or, if they choose, opponents of, the government for the time being. But who of them do thus vote, and especially how each one votes, whether so as to aid or oppose the government, he does not know. The voting being all done secretly by secret ballot. Who, therefore, practically composed the government for the time being, he has no means of knowing. Of course, he can make no contract with them, give them no consent, and make them no pledge. Of necessity, therefore, his paying taxes to them implies, on his part, no contract, consent, or pledge to support them, that is, to support the government or the Constitution. 3. Not knowing who the particular individuals are who call themselves the government, the taxpayer does not know whom 
he pays his taxes too. All he knows is that a man comes to him representing himself to be an agent of the government. That is, the agent of a secret band of robbers and murderers who have taken to themselves the title of the government and have determined to kill everybody who refuses to give them whatever money they demand. To save his life, he gives up his money to this agent. But as this agent does not make his principles individually known to the taxpayer, the latter, after he has given up his money, knows no more who the government, that is, who, are the, who were the robbers, than he did before. To say, therefore, that by giving up his money to their agent, he entered into a voluntary contract with them, that he pledges himself to obey them, to support them, and to give them whatever money they should demand of him in the future is simply ridiculous. Four, all political power, as it is called, rests practically upon this matter of money. Any number of scoundrels, having money enough to start with, can establish themselves as a government. Because with money, they can hire soldiers, and with soldiers, extort more money, and also compel general obedience to their will. It is with government, as Caesar said it was in war, that money and soldiers mutually support each other. That with money, he could hire soldiers, and with soldiers, extort money. So these villains, who call themselves governments, well understand that their power rests primarily upon money. With money, they can hire soldiers, and with soldiers, extort money. And, when their authority is denied, the first use they always make of money is to hire soldiers to kill or subdue all who refuse them more money. For this reason, whoever desires liberty should understand these vital facts. That is to say, one, that every man who puts money into the hands of a government, so-called, puts into his hands a sword which will be used against himself to extort more money from him and also to keep him in subjection to its arbitrary will. Two, that those who will take his money without his consent in the first place will use it for his further robbery and enslavement if he presumes to resist their demands in the future. 3. That it is a perfect absurdity to suppose that any body of men would ever take a man's money without his consent for any such object as they profess to take it for, that is to say, that of protecting him. For why should they wish to protect him if he does not wish them to do so? To suppose that they would do so is just as absurd as it would be to suppose that they would take his money without his consent for the purpose of buying food or clothing for him when he did not want it. 4. If a man wants protection, he is competent to make his own bargains for it, and nobody has any occasion to rob him in order to protect him against his will. 5. That the only security men can have for their political liberty consists in their keeping their money in their own pockets until they have assurances perfectly satisfactory to themselves, that it will be used as they wish it to be used for their benefit and not for their injury. 6. That no government so-called can reasonably be trusted for a moment or reasonably be supposed to have honest purposes in view any longer than it depends wholly upon voluntary support. These facts are, so, are all so vital and so self-evident that it cannot reasonably be supposed that anyone will voluntarily pay money to a government for the purpose of securing its protection unless he first makes an explicit and purely voluntary contract with it for the, that purpose. It is perfectly evident, therefore, that neither such voting nor such payment of taxes, as usually takes place, proves anybody's consent or obligation to support the Constitution. Consequently, we have no evidence at all that the Constitution is binding upon anybody, or that anybody is under any contract or obligation whatever to support it. And nobody is under any obligation to support it. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 4. The Constitution not only binds nobody now, but it never did bind anybody. And never bound to anybody, because it was never agreed to by anybody in such a manner as to make it, on general principles of law and reason, binding upon him. It is a general principle of law and reason that a written instrument binds no one until he has signed it. 
This principle is so inflexible a one that even though a man is unable to write his name, he must still make his mark before he is bound by a written contract. This custom was established ages ago, when few men could write their names. When a clerk, that is, a man who could write, was so rare and valuable a person that even if he were guilty of high crimes, he was entitled to pardon, on the ground that the public could not afford to lose his services. Even at that time, a written contract must be signed, and men who could not write either made their mark or signed their contracts by stamping their seals upon wax affixed to the parchment on which their contracts were written. Hence the custom of affixing seals that has continued to this time. The law holds, and reason declares, that if a written instrument is not signed, the presumption must be that the party to be bound by it did not choose to sign it, or to bind himself by it. And law and reason both give him until the last moment in which to decide whether he will sign it or not. Neither law nor reason requires or expects a man to agree to an instrument until it is written. For until it is written, he cannot know its precise legal meaning. And when it is written, and he has had the opportunity to satisfy himself of the precise legal meaning... He is then expected to decide, and not before, whether he will agree to it or not. And if he do not then sign it, his reason is supposed to be that he does not choose to enter into such a contract. The fact that the instrument was written for him to sign, or with the hope that he would sign it, goes for nothing. Where would the end of fraud in litigation if one party could bring into court a written instrument without any signature and claim to have it enforced upon the ground that it was written for another man to sign? that this other man had promised to sign it, that he ought to have signed it, that he had the opportunity to sign it, if he would, but that he had refused or neglected to do so. Yet, that is the most that could ever be said of the Constitution. The very men who drafted it never signed it in any way to bind themselves by it as a contract, and not one of them probably ever would have signed it in any way to bind himself by it as a contract. Yet the very judges who professed to derive all their authority from the Constitution from an instrument that nobody ever signed, would spurn any other instrument not signed that should be brought before them for adjudication. Moreover, a written instrument must, in law and reason, not only be signed, but must also be delivered to the party or to someone for him. The signing is of no effect unless the instrument be also delivered. And a party is at perfect liberty to refuse to deliver a written instrument after he has signed it. He is as free to refuse to deliver it as he is to refuse to sign it. The Constitution was not only never signed by anybody, but it was never delivered by anybody or to anybody's agent or attorney. It can therefore be of no more validity as a contract than any other instrument that was never signed or delivered. By Sanders Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 5. As further evidence of the general sense of mankind... As to the practical necessity there is that all men's important contracts, especially those of a permanent nature, should be both written and signed, the following facts are pertinent. For nearly 200 years, that is, since 1677, there has been on the Statute Book of England, and the same in substance, if not precisely in letter, has been reenacted, and is now in force, in nearly or quite all the states of this Union, a statute. The general object of which is to declare that no action shall be brought to enforce contracts of the more important class, unless they are put in writing, and signed by the parties to be held chargeable upon them. The principle of the statute, be it observed, is, not merely that written contracts shall be signed, but also that all contracts, except those specially exempted, generally those that are for small amounts and are to remain in force but a short time, shall be both written and signed. The reason of the statute on this point is, that it is now so easy a thing for men to put their contracts in writing and sign them, and their failure to do so opens the door to so much doubt, 
fraud, and litigation that men who neglect to have their contracts of any considerable importance, written and signed, ought not to have the benefit of courts of justice to enforce them. And this reason is a wise one. And that experience has confirmed its wisdom and necessity is demonstrated by the fact that it has been acted upon in England for nearly 200 years and has been so nearly universally adopted in this country and that nobody thinks of repealing it. We all know, too, how careful most men are to have their contracts written and signed, even when the statute does not require it. For example, most men, if they have money due them, of no larger amount than 5 or $10, are careful to take a note for it. If they buy even a small bill of goods, paying for it at the time of delivery, they take a receipted bill for it. If they pay a small balance of a book account or any other small debt previously contracted, they take a written receipt for it. Furthermore, the law everywhere, probably, in our country, as well as in England, requires that a large class of contracts, such as wills, deeds, etc., shall not only be written and signed, but also sealed, witnessed, and acknowledged. And in the case of married women conveying their rights in real estate, the law in many states requires that the women shall be examined separate and apart from their husbands and declare that they sign their contracts free of any fear or compulsion of their husbands. Such are some of the precautions which the laws require and which individuals, for motives of common prudence, even in cases not required by law, take to put their contracts in writing and have them signed and to guard against all uncertainties and controversies in regard to their meaning and validity. And yet, we have what purports, or professes, or is claimed to be a contract, the Constitution, made 80 years ago by men who are now all dead, and who never had any power to bind us, but which, it is claimed, has nevertheless bound three generations of men, consisting of many millions, and which, it is claimed, will be binding upon all the millions that are to come, but which nobody ever signed, sealed, delivered, witnessed, or acknowledged and which few persons, compared with the whole number that are claimed to be bound by it, have ever read, or even seen, or ever will read or see. And of those who have ever read it, or ever will read it, scarcely any two, perhaps no two, have ever agreed, or ever will agree, as to what it means. Moreover, this supposed contract, which would not be received in any court of justice sitting under its authority, if offered to prove a debt of five dollars, owing by one man to another, is one by which, as it is generally interpreted by those who pretend to administer it, all men, women, and children throughout the country and through all time surrender not only all their property, but also their liberties and even lives into the hands of men who by the supposed contract are expressly made wholly irresponsible for their disposal of them. And we are so insane or so wicked as to destroy property and lives without limit in fighting to compel men to fulfill a supposed contract which, inasmuch as it has never been signed by anybody, is, on general principles of law and reason, such principles as we are all governed by in regard to other contracts, the merest waste paper, binding upon nobody, fit only to be thrown into the fire, or, if preserved, preserved only to serve as a witness and a warning of the folly and wickedness of mankind. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 6. It is no exaggeration, but a literal truth, to say that, by the Constitution, not as I interpret it, but as it is interpreted by those who pretend to administer it, the properties, liberties, and lives of the entire people of the United States are surrendered unreservedly into the hands of men who, it is provided by the Constitution itself, shall never be questioned as to any disposal they make of them. Thus, the Constitution, Article 1, Section 6, provides that, for any speech or debate or vote, 
in either house, they, the senators and representatives, shall not be questioned in any other place. The whole lawmaking power is given to these senators and representatives when acting by a two-thirds vote. And this provision protects them from all responsibility for the laws they make. The Constitution also enables them to secure the execution of all their laws by giving them power to withhold the salaries of and to impeach and remove all judicial and executive officers who refuse to execute them. Thus, the whole power of the government is in their hands, and they are made utterly irresponsible for the use they make of it. What is this but absolute irresponsible power? It is no answer to this view of the case to say that these men are under oath to use their power only within certain limits. For what care they? Or what should they care for oaths or limits when it is expressly provided by the Constitution itself that they shall never be questioned or held to any responsibility whatever for violating their oaths or transgressing those limits? Neither is it any answer to this view of the case to say that the particular individuals holding this power can be changed once in two or six years. For the power of each set of men is absolute during the term for which they hold it. And when they can hold it no longer... They are succeeded by men whose powers will be equally absolute and irresponsible. And neither is it any answer to this view of the case to say that the men holding this absolute irresponsible power must be men chosen by the people or portions of them to hold it. A man is nonetheless a slave because he is allowed to choose a new master once in a term of years. Neither are people any less slaves because permitted periodically to choose new masters. What makes them slaves is the fact that they are now and are always hereafter to be, in the hands of men whose power over them is, and always will be, absolute and irresponsible. Of what appreciable value is it to any man, as an individual, that he is allowed a voice in choosing these public masters? His voice is only one of several millions. See, the right of absolute and irresponsible dominion is the right of property, and the right of property is the right of absolute irresponsible dominion. The two are identical the one necessarily implying the other. Neither can exist without the other. If, therefore, Congress have that absolute and irresponsible lawmaking power, which the Constitution, according to their interpretation of it, gives them, it can only be because they own us as property. If they own us as property, they are our masters. And their will is our law. If they do not own us as property, they are not our masters. And their will, as such, is of no authority over us. But these men who claim and exercise this absolute and irresponsible dominion over us dare not be consistent and claim either to be our masters or to own us as property. They say that they are only our servants, agents, attorneys, and representatives. But this declaration involves an absurdity, a contradiction. No man can be my servant, agent, attorney, or representative and be, at the same time, uncontrollable by me and irresponsible to me for his acts. It is of no importance that I appointed him and put all power into his hands if I made him uncontrollable by me and irresponsible to me, he is no longer my servant, agent, attorney, or representative. If I gave him absolute irresponsible power over my property, I gave him the property. If I gave him absolute irresponsible power over myself, I made him my master and gave myself to him as a slave. And it is of no importance whether I called him master or servant, agent or owner. The only question is, what power did I put into his hands? Was it an absolute and irresponsible one, or a limited and responsible one? For still another reason, they are neither our agents, servants, attorneys, nor representatives. And, for that, and that reason is that we do not make ourselves responsible for their acts. If a man is my servant, agent, or attorney, I necessarily make myself responsible for all his acts done within the limits of the power 
I have entrusted to him. If I have entrusted him as my agent with either absolute power or any power at all over the persons or property of other men other than myself, I thereby necessarily make myself responsible to those other persons for any injuries he may do to them so long as he acts within the limits of the power I have granted him. But no individual who may be injured in his person or property by acts of Congress can come to the individual electors and hold them responsible for these acts of their so-called agents or representatives. This fact proves that these pretended agents of the people, of everybody, are really the agents of nobody. If then... Nobody is individually responsible for the acts of Congress. The members of Congress are nobody's agents. And if they are nobody's agents, they are themselves individually responsible for their own acts and for their acts of all whom they employ. And the authority they are exercising is simply their own individual authority. And, by the law of nature, the highest of all laws, anybody injured by their acts, anybody who is deprived by them of his property or his liberty, has the same right to hold them individually responsible that he has to hold any other trespasser individually responsible. He has the same right to resist them and their agents that he has to resist any other trespassers. By Sander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 7. It is plain, then, that on general principles of law and reason, such principles as we all act upon in courts of justice and in common life, the Constitution is no contract, that it binds nobody and never did bind anybody and that all those who pretend to act by its authority are really acting without any legitimate authority at all, that on general principles of law and reason, they are mere usurpers, and that everybody not only has the right, but is morally bound to treat them as such. If the people of this country wish to maintain such a government as the Constitution describes, there is no reason in the world why they should not sign the instrument itself, and thus make known their wishes in an open, authentic manner in such manner as the common sense and experience of mankind have shown to be reasonable and necessary in such cases, and in such manner as to make themselves, as they ought to do, individually responsible for the acts of the government. But the people have never been asked to sign it. And the only reason why they have never been asked to sign it has been that it has been known that they never would sign it, that they were neither such fools nor knaves as they must needs have been to be willing to sign it, that, at least as it has been practically interpreted, it is not what any sensible and honest man wants for himself, nor such as he has any right to impose upon others. It is, to all moral intents and purposes, as destitute of obligation as the compacts which robbers and thieves and pirates enter into with each other, but never sign. If any considerable number of the people believe the Constitution to be good, why do they not sign it themselves and make laws for and administer them upon each other, leaving all other persons who do not interfere with them in peace? Until they have tried the experiment for themselves, how can they have the face to impose the Constitution upon, or even to recommend it to, others? Plainly, the reason for such absurd and inconsistent conduct is that they want the Constitution, not solely for any honest or legitimate use it can be of to themselves or others, but for the dishonest and illegitimate power it gives them over the persons and properties of others. But for this latter reason, and all their eulogiums on the Constitution... All their exhortations and all their expenditures of money and blood to sustain it would be wanting. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 8. The Constitution itself, then, being of no authority, on what authority does our government practically rest? On what ground can those who pretend to administer it claim the right to seize men's property, to restrain them of their natural liberty of action, industry and trade, and to kill all who deny their authority to dispose of men's properties, liberties, and lives at their pleasure or discretion? 
The most they can say in answer to this question is that some half, two-thirds, or three-fourths of the male adults of the country have a tacit understanding they will maintain a government under the Constitution, that they will select by ballot the persons to administer it, and that those persons who may receive a majority or a plurality of their ballots shall act as their representatives and administer the Constitution in their name and by their authority. But this tacit understanding, admitting it to exist, cannot at all justify the conclusion drawn from it. A tacit understanding between A, B, and C that they will, by ballot, deputize D as their agent to deprive me of my property, liberty, or life cannot at all authorize D to do so. He is nonetheless a robber, tyrant, and murderer because he claims to act as their agent than he would be if he avowedly acted on his own responsibility alone. Neither am I bound to recognize him as their agent, nor can he legitimately claim to be their agent when he brings no written authority from them accrediting him as such. I am under no obligation to take his word as to who his principles may be, or whether he has any. Bringing no credentials, I have a right to say he has no such authority even as he claims to have, and that he is therefore intending to rob, enslave, or murder me on his own account. This tacit understanding, therefore, among the voters of the country amounts to nothing as an authority to their agents. Neither do the ballots by which they select their agents avail any more than does their tacit understanding, for their ballots are given in secret, and therefore in a way to avoid any personal responsibility for the acts of their agents. No body of men can be said to authorize a man to act as their agent to the injury of a third person unless they do it in so open and authentic a manner as to make themselves personally responsible for his acts. None of the voters in this country appoint their political agents in any open, authentic manner, or in any manner to make themselves responsible for their acts. Therefore, these pretended agents cannot legitimately claim to really be agents. Somebody must be responsible for the acts of these pretended agents, and if they cannot show any open and authentic credentials from their principles, they cannot in law or reason be said to have any principles. The maxim applies here. That what does not appear does not exist. If they can show no principles, they have none. But even these pretended agents do not themselves know who their pretended principles are. These latter act in secret, for acting by secret ballot is acting in secret as much as if they were to meet in secret conclave in the darkness of the night. And they are personally as much unknown to the agents they select as they are to others. No pretended agent, therefore, can ever know by whose ballot he is selected, or consequently who his real principles are. Not knowing who his principles are, he has no right to say he has any. He can, at most, say only that he is the agent of a secret band of robbers and murderers who were bind by that faith which prevails among confederates in crime, to stand by him if his acts, done in their name, shall be resisted. Men honestly engaged in attempting to establish justice in the world have no occasion to thus act in secret, or to appoint agents to do acts by which they, the principals, are not willing to be responsible. The secret ballot makes a secret government, and a secret government is a secret band of robbers and murderers. Open despotism is better than this. The single despot stands out in the face of all men and says, I am the state. My will is law. I am your master. I take the responsibility of my acts. The only arbiter I acknowledge is the sword. If anyone denies my right, let him try conclusions with me. But a secret government is little less than a government of assassins. Under it, a man knows not who his tyrants are, until they have struck, and perhaps not then. He may guess beforehand as to some of his immediate neighbors but he really knows nothing. The man to whom he would most naturally fly for protection may prove an enemy when the trial comes. This is the kind of government we have, and is the only one we are likely to have until men are ready to say. We will consent to no constitution, except such and one 
as we are neither ashamed nor afraid to sign, and we will authorize no government to do anything in our name which we are not willing to be personally responsible for. By Sanders Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 9. What is the motive to the secret ballot? This and only this. Like other Confederates in crime, those who use it are not friends, but enemies, and they are afraid to be known and to have their individual doings known even to each other. They can contrive to bring about a sufficient understanding to enable them to act in concert against other persons. But beyond this, they have no confidence and no friendship among themselves. In fact, they are engaged quite as much in schemes for plundering each other as in plundering those who are not of them. And it is perfectly well understood among them that the strongest party among them will, in certain contingencies, murder each other by the hundreds of thousands, as they lately did do, to accomplish their purposes against each other. Hence, they dare not to be known, and have their individual doings known even to each other. And this is avowedly the only reason for the ballot, for a secret government, a government by secret bands of robbers and murderers. And we are insane enough to call this liberty? To be a member of this secret band of robbers and murderers is esteemed a privilege and an honor? Without this privilege, a man is considered a slave, but with it a free man? With it, he is considered a free man because he has the same power to secretly, by secret ballot, procure the robbery, enslavement, and murder of another man? And that other man has to procure his robbery, enslavement, and murder? And this they call equal rights? If any number of men, many or few, claim the right to govern the people of this country, let them make and sign an open compact with each other to do so. Let them thus make themselves individually known to those whom they propose to govern, and let them thus openly take the legitimate responsibility of their acts. How many of those who now support the Constitution will ever do this? How many will ever dare openly proclaim their right to govern or take the legitimate responsibility of their acts? Not one. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 10. It is obvious that, on general principles of law and reason, there exists no such thing as a government created by or resting upon any consent, compact, or agreement of the people of the United States with each other. That the only visible, tangible, responsible government that exists is that of a few individuals only, who act in concert and call themselves by the several names of senators, representatives, presidents, judges, marshals, treasurers, collectors, generals, colonels, captains, etc., etc. On general principles of law and reason, it is of no importance whatever that these few individuals profess to be the agents and representatives of the people of the United States. Since they can show no credentials from the people themselves, they were never appointed as agents or representatives in any open, authentic manner. They do not themselves know and have no means of knowing and cannot prove who their principles, as they call them, are individually, and consequently cannot in law or reason be said to have any principles at all. It is obvious, too, that if these alleged principles ever did appoint these pretended agents or representatives, they appointed them secretly, by secret ballot, and in a way to avoid all personal responsibility for their acts. That, at most, these alleged principles put these pretended agents forward for the most criminal purposes, that is to say, to plunder the people of their property and restrain them of their liberty. And that the only authority that these alleged principles have for so doing is simply a tacit understanding among themselves that they will imprison, shoot, or hang every man who resists the exactions and restraints which their agents or representatives may impose upon them. Thus, it is obvious that the only visible, tangible government we have is made up of these professed agents or representatives of a secret band of robbers and murderers who, to cover up or gloss over, their robberies and murders have taken to themselves the title of the people of the United States, and who, on the pretense of being the people of the United States, assert their right to subject to their dominion and to control and dispose of, at their pleasure, all property and persons found in the United States.
Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 11. On general principles of law and reason, the oaths which these pretended agents of the people take to support the Constitution are of no validity or obligation. And why? For this, if for no other reason, that they are given to nobody. There is no privity, as the lawyers say, that is no mutual recognition, consent, and agreement between those who take these oaths and any other persons. If I go upon Boston Common, and in the presence of a hundred thousand people, men, women, and children, with whom I have no contract on the subject, take an oath that I will enforce upon them the law of Moses, of Lycurgus, of Solon, of Justinian, or of Alfred, that oath is, on general principles of law and reason, of no obligation. It is of no obligation not merely because it is intrinsically a criminal one, but also because it is given to nobody, and consequently pledges my faith to nobody. It is merely given to the winds. It would not alter the case at all to say that among these hundred thousand persons, in whose presence the oath was taken, there were two, three, or five thousand male adults who had secretly, by secret ballot, and in a way to avoid making themselves individually known to me, or to the remainder of the hundred thousand, designated me secretly and in a manner to prevent my knowing them individually, prevents all privity between them and me, and consequently makes it impossible that there could be any contract or pledge of faith on my part towards them, for it is impossible that I can pledge my faith in any legal sense to a man whom I neither know nor have any means of knowing individually. So far as I am concerned, then, these two, three, or five thousand persons are a secret band of robbers and murderers, who have secretly, and in a way to save themselves from all responsibility for my acts, designated me as their agent, and have, through some other agent or pretended agent, made their wishes known to me. But being nevertheless individually unknown to me, and having no open, authentic contract with me, my oath is, on general principles of law and reason, of no validity as a pledge of faith to them. And being no pledge of faith to them, it is no pledge of faith to anybody. It is mere idle wind. At most, it is only a pledge of faith to an unknown band of robbers and murderers, whose instrument for plundering and murdering other people I thus publicly confess myself to be. And it has no other obligation than a similar oath given to any other unknown body of pirates, robbers, and murderers. For these reasons, the oaths taken by members of Congress who support the Constitution are, on general principles of law and reason, of no validity. They are not only criminal in themselves and therefore void, but they are also void for the further reason that they are given to nobody. It cannot be said that in any legitimate or legal sense they are given to the people of the United States. It is neither the whole nor any large proportion of the whole people of the United States ever either openly or secretly appointed or designated these men as their agents to carry the Constitution into effect. The great body of the people, that is, men, women, and children, were never asked or even permitted to signify in any formal manner, either openly or secretly, their choice or wish on the subject. The most that these members of Congress can say in favor of their appointment is simply this, each one can say for himself. I have evidence satisfactory to myself that there exists scattered throughout the country a band of men having a tacit understanding with each other and calling themselves the people of the United States, whose general purposes are to control and plunder each other and all other persons in the country, and, so far as they can, even in neighboring countries, and to kill every man who shall attempt to defend his person and property against their schemes of plunder and dominion. Who these men are individually, I have no certain means of knowing, for they sign no papers and give no open, authentic evidence of their individual membership. They are not known individually even to each other. They are apparently as much afraid of being individually known to each other as of being known to other persons. Hence, they ordinarily have no mode either of exercising or of making known their individual membership, otherwise than by giving their votes secretly for certain agents to do their will.
But although these men are individually unknown both to each other and to other persons, it is generally understood in the country that none but male persons of the age of 21 years and upwards can be members. It is also generally understood that all male persons born in the country have in certain complexions and in some localities certain amounts of property and in certain cases even persons of foreign birth are permitted to be members. But it appears that usually not more than one-half, two-thirds, or in some cases three-fourths of all who are thus permitted to become members of the band ever exercise or consequently prove their actual membership in the only mode in which they ordinarily can exercise or prove it. That is to say, by giving their vote secretly for the officers or agents of the band. The number of these secret votes, so far as we have any account of them, varies greatly from year to year, thus tending to prove that the band, instead of being a permanent organization, is merely pro tempore affair, with those who choose to act with it for the time being. The gross number of these secret votes, or what purports to be their gross number in different localities, is occasionally published. Whether these reports are accurate or not, we have no means of knowing. It is generally supposed that great frauds are often committed in depositing them. They are understood to be received and counted by certain men, who were themselves appointed for that purpose by the same secret process by which all other officers and agents of the band are selected. According to the reports of these receivers of votes, for whose accuracy or honesty, however, I cannot vouch, and according to my best knowledge of the whole number of male persons in my district who, it is supposed, were permitted to vote, it would appear that one-half, two-thirds, or three-fourths actually did vote. Who the men were individually who cast these votes, I have no knowledge, for the whole thing was done secretly. But of the secret votes, thus given for what they call a member of Congress, the receivers reported that I had a majority, or at least a larger number than any other one person. And it is only by virtue of such a designation that I am now here to act in concert with other persons similarly selected in other parts of the country. It is understood among those who sent me here that all the persons so selected will, on coming together at the city of Washington, take an oath in each other's presence to support the Constitution of the United States. By this is meant a certain paper that was drawn up 80 years ago. It was never signed by anybody and apparently has no obligation and never had any obligation as a contract. In fact, few persons ever read it, and doubtless much the largest number of those who voted for me and the others never even saw it, or now pretend to know what it means. Nevertheless, it is often spoken of in the country as the Constitution of the United States. And for some reason or another, the men who send me here seem to expect that I, and all with whom I act, will swear to carry this Constitution into effect. I am therefore ready to take this oath, and to cooperate with all others similarly selected who are ready to take the same oath. This is the most that any member of Congress can say in proof that he has any constituency, that he represents anybody, that his oath to support the Constitution is given to anybody or pledges his faith to anybody. He has no open, written, or other authentic evidence, such as is required in all other cases, that he has ever appointed the agent or representative of anybody. He has no written power of attorney from any single individual. He has no such legal knowledge as is required in all other cases, by which he can identify a single one of them who pretend to have appointed him to represent them. This oath, professedly given to them to support the Constitution, is, on general principles of law and reason, an oath given to nobody. It pledges his faith to nobody. If he fails to fulfill his oath, not a single person can come forward and say to him, you have betrayed me, or broken faith with me. No one can come forward and say to him, I appointed you my attorney to act for me. I required you to swear that, as my attorney, you would support the Constitution. You promised me that you would do so, and now you have forfeited the oath you gave to me. No single individual can say this. No open, avowed, or responsible association or body of men can come forward and say to him, we appointed you our attorney to act for us. We required you to swear that, as our attorney, you would support the Constitution. You promised us that you would do so, and now you have forfeited the oath you gave to us. 
No open, avowed, or responsible association or body of men can say this to him, because there is no such association or body of men in existence. If anyone should assert that there is such an association, let him prove, if he can, who composed it. Let him produce, if he can, any open, written, or other authentic contract signed or agreed to by these men, forming themselves into an association, making themselves known as such to the world, appointing him as their agent, and making themselves individually or as an association responsible for his acts done by their authority. Until all this can be shown, no one can say that in any legitimate sense there is any such association, or that he is their agent, or that he ever gave his oath to them, or ever pledged his faith to them. On general principles of law and reason, it would be a sufficient answer for him to say to all individuals and all pretended associations of individuals who should accuse him of a breach of faith to them. I never knew you. Where is your evidence that you, either individually or collectively, ever appointed me your attorney? That you ever required me to swear to you that, as your attorney, I would support the Constitution? Or that I have now broken any faith I ever pledged to you? You may or you may not be members of that secret band of robbers and murderers who act in secret, appoint their agents by a secret ballot, who keep themselves individually unknown even to the agents they thus appoint, and who, therefore, cannot claim that they have any agents, or that any of their pretended agents ever gave his oath or pledged his faith to them. I repudiate you altogether. My oath was given to others, with whom you have nothing to do. Or it was idle wind, given only to the idle winds. Begone by Sanders Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 12. For the same reasons, the oaths of all other pretended agents of this secret band of robbers and murderers are, on general principles of law and reason, equally destitute of obligation. They are given to nobody, but only to the winds. The oaths of the tax gatherers and treasurers of the band are, on general principles of law and reason, of no validity. If any tax gatherer, for example, should put money he receives into his own pocket and refuse to part with it, the members of this band could not say to him, you collected that money as our agent and for our uses, and you swore to pay it over to us or to those we should appoint to receive it. You have betrayed us and broken faith with us. It would be a sufficient answer for him to say to them, I never knew you. You never made yourselves individually known to me. I never gave my oath to you as individuals. You may or may not be members of that secret band who appoint agents to rob and murder other people, but who are cautious not to make themselves individually known either to such agents or to those whom their agents are commissioned to rob. If you are members of that band, you have given me no proof that you ever commissioned me to rob others for your benefit. I never knew you, as individuals, and of course, never promised you that I would pay over to you the proceeds of my robberies. I committed my robberies on my own account and for my own profit. If you thought I was fool enough to allow you to keep yourselves concealed and use me as your tool for robbing other persons, or that I would take all the personal risk for the robberies and pay over the proceeds to you, you are particularly simple. As I took all the risk of my robberies, I propose to take all the profits. Be gone. You are fools as well as villains. If I gave my oath to anybody, I gave it to other persons than you. But I really gave it to nobody. I only gave it to the winds. It answered my purposes at the time. It enabled me to get the money I was after, and now I propose to keep it. If you expected me to pay it over to you, you relied only upon that honor that is said to prevail among thieves. You now understand that is a very poor reliance. I trust you may become wise enough to never rely upon it again. If I have any duty in the matter, it is to give back the money to those whom I took it, not to pay it over to such villains such as you. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 13. On general principles of law and reason, the oaths which foreigners take on coming here and being naturalized, as it is called, are of no validity. They are necessarily given to nobody, because there is no open, authentic association to which they can join themselves or to whom, as individuals, they can pledge their faith. 
No such association or organization as the people of the United States having ever been formed by any open, written, authentic, or voluntary contract, there is, on general principles of law and reason, no such association or organization in existence. And all oaths that purport to be given to such an association are necessarily given only to the winds. They cannot be said to be given to any man or body of men as individuals because no man or body of men can come forward with any proof that the oaths were given to them as individuals or to any association of which they are members. To say that there is a tacit understanding among a portion of the male adults of the country that they will call themselves the people of the United States and that they will act in concert in subjecting the remainder of the people of the United States to their dominion, but that they will keep themselves personally concealed by doing all their acts secretly is wholly insufficient, on general principles of law and reason, to prove the existence of any such association or organization as the people of the United States, or consequently to prove that the oaths of foreigners were given to any such association. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 14. On general principles of law and reason, all the oaths which, since the war, have been given by Southern men, that they will obey the laws of Congress, support the Union, and the like, are of no validity. Such oaths are invalid not only because they were extorted by military power and threats of confiscation, and because they are in contravention of men's natural right to do as they please about supporting the government, but also because they are given to nobody. They were nominally given to the United States, but being nominally given to the United States, they were necessarily given to nobody. Because, on general principles of law and reason, there were no United States to whom the oaths could be given. That is to say, there was no open, authentic, avowed, legitimate association, corporation, or body of men known as the United States or as the people of the United States to whom the oaths could have been given. If anybody says that there was such a corporation, let him state who were the individuals who comprised it and how and when they became a corporation. Were Mr. A, Mr. B, and Mr. C members of it? If so, where are their signatures? Where is the evidence of their membership? Where the record? Where the open, authentic proof? There is none. Therefore, in law and reason, there was no such corporation. On general principles of law and reason, every corporation, association, or organized body of men having a legitimate corporate existence and legitimate corporate rights must consist of certain known individuals who can prove, by legitimate and reasonable evidence, their membership. But nothing of this kind can be proved in regard to the corporation or body of men who call themselves the United States. Not a man of them in all the northern states can prove by any legitimate evidence, such as is required to prove membership in other legal corporations, that he himself or any other man whom he can name is a member of any corporation or association called the United States or the people of the United States, or, consequently, that there is any such corporation. And since no such corporation can be proved to exist, it cannot, of course, be proved that the oaths of Southern men were given to any such corporation. The most that can be claimed is that the oaths were given to a secret band of robbers and murderers who call themselves the United States and extorted those oaths. But that certainly is not enough to prove that the oaths are of any obligation. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 15. On general principles of law and reason, the oaths of soldiers that they will serve a given number of years, that they will obey the orders of their superior officers, that they will bear true allegiance to the government, and so forth, are of no obligation. Independently of the criminality of an oath that, for a given number of years, he will kill all whom he may be commanded to kill, without exercising his own judgment or conscience as to the justice or necessity of such killing, there is this further reason why a soldier's oath is of no obligation. That is to say, that like all the other oaths that have been now mentioned, it is given to nobody. 
there being in no legitimate sense any such corporation or nation as the United States, nor consequently in any legitimate sense any such government as the government of the United States, a soldier's oath given to or contract made with such nation or government is necessarily an oath given to or a contract made with nobody. Consequently, such oath or contract can be of no obligation. By Sander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 16. On general principles of law and reason, the treaties, so-called, which purport to be entered into with other nations by persons calling themselves ambassadors, secretaries, presidents, and senators of the United States, in the name and in behalf of the people of the United States, are of no validity. These so-called ambassadors, secretaries, presidents, and senators, who claim to be the agents of the people of the United States for making these treaties, can show no open, written, or other authentic evidence that either the whole people of the United States or any other open, avowed, responsible body of men calling themselves by that name ever authorized these pretended ambassadors and others to make treaties in the name of or binding upon any one of the people of the United States or any other open, avowed, responsible body of men calling themselves by that name, ever authorized these pretended ambassadors, secretaries, and others, in their name and behalf, to recognize certain other persons, calling themselves emperors, kings, queens, and the like, as the rightful rulers, sovereigns, masters, or representatives of the different peoples whom they assume to govern, to represent, and to bind. The nations, as they are called, with whom our pretended ambassadors, secretaries, presidents, and senators profess to make treaties, are as much myths as our own. On general principles of law and reason, there are no such nations. That is to say, neither the whole people of England, for example, nor any open, avowed, re responsible body of men calling themselves by that name ever, by any open, written, or other authentic contract with each other, form themselves into any bona fide, legitimate association or organization, or authorize any king, queen, or other representative to make treaties in their name or to bind them, either individually or as an association by such treaties. Our pretended treaties, then, being made with no legitimate or bona fide nations or representatives of nations, and being made on our part by persons who have no legitimate authority to act for us, have intrinsically no more validity than a pretended treaty made by the man in the moon with the king of the Polites. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 17. On general principles of law and reason, debts contracted in the name of the United States or the people of the United States are of no validity. It is utterly absurd to pretend that debts to the amount of 2,500 millions of dollars are binding upon 35 or 40 millions of people when there is not a particle of legitimate evidence, such as would be required to prove a private debt, that can be produced against any one of them, that either he or his properly authorized attorney ever contracted to pay one cent. Certainly neither the whole people of the United States nor any number of them ever separately or individually contracted to pay a cent to these debts. Certainly, also, neither the whole people of the United States, nor any number of them ever by any open, written, or other authentic or voluntary contract, united themselves as a firm corporation or association by the name of the United States, or the people of the United States, and authorized their agents to contract debts in their name. Certainly, too, there is in existence no such firm corporation or association as the United States or the people of the United States formed by any open, written, or other authentic and voluntary contract and having corporate property with which to pay these debts. 
How, then, is it possible on any general principles of law or reason that debts that are binding upon nobody individually can be binding upon 40 millions of people collectively when, on general and legitimate principles of law and reason, these 40 millions of people neither have nor ever had any corporate property, never made any corporate or individual contract, and neither have nor ever had any corporate existence? Who then created these debts in the name of the United States? Why? At most, only a few persons calling themselves members of Congress, etc., who pretended to represent the people of the United States, but who really represented only a secret band of robbers and murderers, who wanted money to carry on the robberies and murders in which they were then engaged, and who intended to extort from the future people of the United States by robbery and threats of murder, and real murder, if that should prove necessary, the means to pay these debts. This band of robbers and murderers, who were the real principals in contracting these debts, is a secret one, because its members have never entered into any open, written, avowed, or authentic contract by which they may be individually known to the world or even to each other. Their real or pretended representatives who contracted these debts in their name were selected, if selected at all, for that purpose secretly, by secret ballot and in a way to furnish evidence against none of the principals individually. And these principals were known individually neither to their pretended representatives who contracted these debts in their behalf, nor to those who lent the money. The money, therefore, was all borrowed and lent in the dark, that is, by men who did not see each other's faces, or know each other's names, who could not then and cannot now identify each other as principals in the transactions, and who consequently can prove no contract with each other. Furthermore, the money was all lent and borrowed for criminal purposes, that is, for purposes of robbery and murder, and for this reason, the contracts were all intrinsically void, and would have been so even though the real parties, borrowers and lenders, had come face to face, and made their contracts openly in their own proper names. Furthermore, the secret band of robbers and murderers, who were the real borrowers of this money, having no legitimate corporate existence, have no corporate property with which to pay these debts. They do indeed pretend to own large tracts of wild lands lying between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans and between the Gulf of Mexico and the North Pole. But, on general principles of law and reason, they might as well pretend to own the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans themselves or the atmosphere and the sunlight and to hold them and dispose of them for the payment of these debts. Having no corporate property with which to pay what purports to be their corporate debts, the secret band of robbers and murderers are really bankrupt. They have nothing to pay with. In fact, they do not propose to pay their debts otherwise than from the proceeds of their future robberies and murders. They are confessedly their sole reliance, and were known to be such by the lenders of the money at the time the money was lent. And it was, therefore, virtually a part of their contract that the money should be repaid only from the proceeds of these future robberies and murders. For this reason, if for no other, the contracts were void from the beginning. In fact, these apparently two classes, borrowers and lenders, were really one and the same class. They borrowed and lent money from and to themselves. They themselves were not only part and parcel, but the very life and soul of the secret band of robbers and murderers who borrowed and spent the money. Individually, they furnished money for a common enterprise, taking in return what purported to be corporate promises for individual loans. The only excuse they had for taking these so-called corporate promises of for individual loans by the same parties was that they might have some apparent excuse for the future robberies of the band, that is, to pay the debts of the corporation. And they might also know what shares they were to be respectively entitled to out of the proceeds of their future robberies. Finally, if these debts had been created for the utmost innocent and honest purposes, 
and in the most open and honest manner. By the real parties to the contracts, these parties could thereby have bound nobody but themselves and no property but their own. They could have bound nobody that should have come after them and no property subsequently created by or belonging to other persons. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 18. The Constitution having never been signed by anybody, and there being no other open, written, or authentic contract between any parties whatever, by virtue of which the United States government so-called is maintained, and it being well known that none but male persons of 21 years of age and upwards are allowed any voice in the government, and it also being well known that a large number of those adult persons seldom or never vote at all, and that all those who do vote do so secretly by secret ballot and in a way to prevent their individual votes being known, either to the world or even to each other, and consequently in a way to make no one openly responsible for the acts of their agents or representatives, all these things being known, the questions arise. Who composed the real governing power in this country? Who are the men, the responsible men, who rob us of our property, restrain us of our liberty, subject us to their arbitrary dominion, and devastate our homes and shoot us down by the hundreds of thousands if we resist? How shall we find these men? How shall we know them from others? How shall we defend ourselves and our property against them? Who of our neighbors are members of the secret band of robbers and murderers? How can we know which are their houses, that we may burn or demolish them? Which their property, that we may destroy it? which their persons, that we may kill them, and rid the world and ourselves of such tyrants and monsters. These are questions that must be answered, before men can be free, before they can protect themselves against the secret band of robbers and murderers who now plunder and slave and destroy them. The answer to these questions is, that only those who have the will and the power to shoot down their fellow men are the real rulers in this, as in all other so-called civilized countries. For by no others will civilized men be robbed or enslaved. Among savages, mere physical strength on the part of one man may enable him to rob, enslave, or kill another man. Among barbarians, mere physical strength on the part of a body of men, disciplined and acting in concert, though with very little money or other wealth, may, under some circumstances, enable them to rob, enslave, or kill another body of men as numerous or perhaps even more numerous than themselves. And among both savages and barbarians, mere want may sometimes compel one man to sell himself as a slave to another. But with so-called civilized peoples, among whom knowledge, wealth, and the means of acting in concert have become diffused, and who have invented such weapons and other means of defense as to render mere physical strength of less importance, and by whom soldiers in any requisite number, and any other instrumentalities of war in any requisite amount, can always be had for money. The question of war, and consequently the question of power, is little else more than a mere question of money. As a necessary consequence, those who stand ready to furnish this money are the real rulers. It is so in Europe, and it is so in this country. In Europe, the nominal rulers, the emperors and kings and parliaments, are anything but the real rulers of their respective countries. They are little or nothing else than mere tools, employed by the wealthy who rob and slave and, if need be, murder those who have less wealth or none at all. The Rothschilds, and that class of moneylenders, of whom they are the representatives and agents, men who never think of lending a shilling to the next-door neighbors for purposes of honest industry, unless upon the most ample security and at the highest rate of interest, stand ready at all times to lend money of unlimited amounts to those robbers and murderers who call themselves governments, in shooting down those who do not submit quietly to being robbed and enslaved. They lend their money in this manner, knowing that it is to be expended in murdering their fellow men, for simply seeking their liberty and their rights. 
knowing also that neither the interest nor the principal will ever be paid, except as it will be extorted on the terror of the repetition of such murders as those for which the money is lent to be expended. These moneylenders, the Rothschilds, for example, say to themselves, if we lend a hundred million sterling to the Queen and Parliament of England, it will enable them to murder twenty, fifty, or a hundred thousand people in England, Ireland, or India, and the terror inspired by such wholesale murder will enable them to keep the whole people of those countries in subjection for twenty, or perhaps fifty years to come, to control all their trade and industry, and to extort from them large amounts of money, under the name of taxes, and from the wealth thus extorted from them, they, the Queen and Parliament, can afford to pay us a higher rate of interest for our money than we can get in any other way. Or, if we lend this sum to the Emperor of Austria, it will enable him to murder so many of his people as to strike terror into the rest, and thus enable him to keep them in subjection, and extort money from them, for twenty or fifty years to come. And they say the same in regard to the Emperor of Russia, the King of Prussia, the Emperor of France, or any other ruler, so-called, who, in their judgment, will be able, by murdering a reasonable portion of his people, to keep the rest in subjection, and extort money from them, for a long time to come, to pay the interest and principal of the money lent him. And why are these men so ready to lend money for murdering their fellow men? Solely for this reason. That is to say, that such loans are considered better investments than loans for purposes of honest industry. They pay higher rates of interest, and it is less trouble to look after them. This is the whole matter. The question of making these loans is, with these lenders, a mere question of pecuniary profit. They lend money to be expended in robbing, enslaving, and murdering their fellow men, solely because, on the whole, such loans pay better than any others. They are no respecters of persons, no superstitious fools, that reverence monarchs. They care no more for a king or an emperor than they do for a beggar, except as he is a better customer, and can pay them better interest for their money. If they doubt his ability to make his murder successful for maintaining his power, and thus extorting money from his people in future, they dismiss him as unceremoniously as they would dismiss any other hopeless bankrupt who should want to borrow money to save himself from open insolvency. When these great lenders of blood money, like the Rothschilds, have loaned vast sums in this way for purposes of murder to an emperor or a king, they sell out the bonds taken by them in small amounts to anybody and everybody who are disposed to buy them at satisfactory prices to hold as investments. They, the Rothschilds, thus soon get back their money with great profits, and are now ready to lend money in the same way again to any other robber or murderer, called an emperor or a king, necessary to be successful in his robberies and murders, and able to pay a good price for the money necessary to carry them on. The business of lending blood money is one of the most thoroughly sordid, cold-blooded, and criminal that was ever carried on, to any considerable extent, amongst human beings. It is like lending money to slave traders, or to common robbers and pirates, to be repaid out of their plunder. And the men who loan money to governments, so-called, for the purpose of enabling the latter to rob, enslave, and murder their people, are among the greatest villains the world has ever seen. And they as much deserve to be hunted and killed, if they cannot otherwise be got rid of, as any slave traders, robbers, or pirates that ever lived. When these emperors and kings, so-called, have obtained their loans, they proceed to hire and train immense numbers of professional murderers called soldiers, and employ them in shooting down all who resist their demands for money. In fact, most of them keep large bodies of these murderers constantly in their service as their only means of enforcing their extortions. There are now, I think, four or five millions of these professional murderers constantly employed by the so-called sovereigns of Europe. The enslaved people are, of course, forced to support and pay all these murderers, as well as to submit to all other extortions which these murderers employed to enforce. It is only in this way that most of the so-called governments of Europe are maintained. These so-called governments are in reality only great bands of robbers and murderers, organized, disciplined, and constantly on the alert. 
And the so-called sovereigns in these different governments are simply the heads or chiefs of different bands of robbers and murderers. And these heads or chiefs are dependent upon the lenders of blood money for the means to carry on their robberies and murders. They could not sustain themselves a moment but for the loans made to them by these blood money loan mongers. At first care is to maintain their credit with them, for they know their end has come the instant their credit with them fails. Consequently, the first proceeds of their extortions are scrupulously applied to the payment of the interest on their loans. In addition to paying the interest on their bonds, they perhaps grant to the holders of them great monopolies in banking, like the banks of England, of France, and of Vienna. With the agreement that these banks shall furnish money whenever, in sudden emergencies, it may be necessary to shoot down more of their people. Perhaps also, by means of tariffs on competing imports, they give great monopolies to certain branches of industry, in which these lenders of blood money are engaged. They also, by unequal taxation, exempt wholly or partially the property of these loanmongers, and throw corresponding burdens upon those who are too poor and weak to resist. Thus it is evident that all these men, who call themselves by the high-sounding names of emperors, kings, sovereigns, monarchs, most Christian majesties, most Catholic majesties, high mightinesses, most serene and potent princes, and the like, and who claim to rule by the grace of God, by divine right, that is, by special authority from heaven, are intrinsically not only the merest miscreants and wretches engaged solely in plundering, enslaving, and murdering their fellow men, but that they are also the merest hangers-on, the servile, obsequious, fawning dependents and tools of these blood-money loanmongers, on whom they rely for the means to carry on their crimes. These loanmongers, like the Rothschilds, laugh in their sleeves and say to themselves, These despicable creatures who call themselves emperors and kings and majesties, and most serene and potent princes, who profess to wear crowns and sit on thrones, who deck themselves with ribbons and feathers and jewels, and surround themselves with hired flatterers and lickspittles, and whom we suffer to strut around and palm themselves off upon fools and slaves as sovereigns and lawgivers, specially appointed by Almighty God, and to hold themselves out as the sole fountains of honors and dignities and wealth and power. All these miscreants and impostors know that we make them and use them, that in us they live, move, and have their being, that we require them, as the price of their positions, to take upon themselves all the labor, all the danger, and all the odium of all the crimes they commit for our profit, and that we will unmake them, strip them of their gigaws, and send them out into the world as beggars, or give them over to the vengeance of the people they have enslaved, the moment they refuse to commit any crime we require of them, or to pay over to us such share of the proceeds of their robberies as we see fit to demand. By Sander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 19. Now, what is true in Europe is substantially true in this country. The difference is the immaterial one, that in this country there is no visible, permanent head or chief of these robbers and murderers who call themselves the government. That is to say, there is no one man who calls himself the state or even emperor, king, or sovereign. No one who claims that he and his children rule by the grace of God, by divine right, or by special appointment from heaven. There are only certain men who call themselves presidents, senators, and representatives, and claim to be the authorized agents for the time being or for certain short periods of all the people of the United States, but who can show no credentials or powers of attorney or any other open authentic evidence that they are so, and who notoriously are not so, but are only really the agents of a secret band of robbers and murderers, whom they themselves do not know, and have no means of knowing individually, but who they trust will openly or secretly, when the crisis comes, sustain them in all their usurpations and crimes. What is important to be noticed is that these so-called presidents, senators, and representatives, these pretended agents of all the people of the United States, the moment their exactions meet with any formidable resistance from any portion of the people, they themselves are obliged, like their co-robbers and murderers in Europe, 
to fly at once to the lenders of blood money for the means to sustain their power. And they borrow their money on the same principle and for the same purpose. To be expended in shooting down all those people of the United States, their own constituents and principles as they profess to call them, who resist the robberies and enslavement which these borrowers of money are practicing upon them. And they expect to repay the loans, if at all, only from the proceeds of the future robberies, which they anticipate it will be easy for them and their successors to perpetuate through a long series of years upon the pretended principles if they can but shoot down some hundreds of thousands of them and thus strike terror into the rest. Perhaps the facts were never made more evident in any country on the globe than in our own, that these soulless blood money loan mongers are the real rulers. That the ostensible government, the presidents, senators, and representatives, so-called, are merely their tools, and that no ideas of or regard for justice or liberty had anything to do in inducing them to lend their money for the war. In proof of all this, look at the following facts. Nearly a hundred years ago, we professed to have got rid of all that religious superstition inculcated by a servile and corrupt priesthood in Europe that rulers, so-called, derive their authority directly from heaven, and that it was consequently a religious duty on the part of the people to obey them. We professed long ago to have learned that governments could rightfully exist only by the free will and on the voluntary support of those who might choose to sustain them. We all profess to have known long ago that the only legitimate objects of government were the maintenance of liberty and justice equally for all. All this we had professed for nearly a hundred years. And we profess to look with pity and contempt upon those ignorant, superstitious, and enslaved peoples of Europe who were so easily kept in subjection by the frauds and force of priests and kings. Notwithstanding all this that we had learned and known and professed for nearly a century, these lenders of blood money had, for a long series of years previous to the war, been the willing accomplices of the slaveholders in perverting the government from the purposes of liberty and justice to the greatest of crimes. They had been such accomplices for a purely pecuniary consideration, to wit, a control of the markets in the South. In other words, the privilege of holding the slaveholders themselves in industrial and commercial subjection to the manufacturers and merchants of the North, who afterwards furnished the money for the war. And these northern merchants and manufacturers, these lenders of blood money, were willing to continue to be the accomplices of the slaveholders in the future for the same pecuniary consideration. But the slaveholders, either doubting the fidelity of their northern allies or feeling themselves strong enough to keep their slaves in subjection without northern assistance, would no longer pay the price which these northern men demanded. And it was to enforce this price in the future, that is to monopolize the southern markets, to maintain their industrial and commercial control over the south, that these northern manufacturers and merchants lent some of the profits of their former monopolies for the war in order to secure to themselves the same or greater monopolies in the future. These, and not any love of liberty or justice, were the motives on which the money for the war was lent by the North. In short, the North said to the slaveholders, if you will not pay us our price, that is, give us control over your markets, for our assistance against your slaves, we will secure the same price, keep control of your markets, by helping your slaves against you, and using them as our tools for maintaining dominion over you. For the control of your markets we will have, whether the tools we use for that purpose be black or white, and be the cost, in blood or money, what it may. On this principle and from this motive, and not from any love of liberty or justice, the money was lent in enormous amounts and at enormous rates of interest. And it was only by means of these loans that the objects of the war were accomplished. And now these lenders of blood money demand their pay. And the government, so-called, becomes their tool, their servile, slavish, villainous tool, to extort it from the labor of the enslaved people both of the North and of the South. And it is to be extorted by every form of direct and indirect and unequal taxation. Not only the nominal debt and interest, enormous as the latter was, are to be paid in full, but these holders of the debt are to be paid still further, 
and perhaps doubly, triply, or quadruply paid by such tariffs on imports as will enable our home manufacturers to realize enormous prices for their commodities. Also by such monopolies in banking as will enable them to keep control of and thus enslave and plunder the industry and trade of the great body of the northern people themselves. Short, the industrial and commercial slavery of the great body of the people, north and south, black and white, and is the price that these lenders of blood money demand and insist upon and are determined to secure in return for the money lent for the war. This program, having been fully arranged and systematized, they put their sword into the hands of the chief murderer of the war and charge him to carry their scheme into effect. And now he, speaking as their organ, says, let us have peace. The meaning of this is, submit quietly to all the robbery and slavery we have arranged for you, and you can have peace. But in case you resist, the same lenders of blood money who furnish the means to subdue the South will furnish the means to again subdue you. These are the terms on which alone this government, or, with few exceptions, any other, ever gives peace to its people. The whole affair on the part of those who furnish the money has been, and now is, a deliberate scheme of robbery and murder. Not merely to monopolize the markets of the South, but also to monopolize the currency, and thus control the industry and trade, and thus plunder and enslave the laborers of both North and South. And Congress, and the President, are today the merest tools for their purposes. They are obliged to be, for they show that their own power as rulers, so-called, is at an end the moment their credit with the blood money loanmongers fails. They are like a bankrupt in the hands of an extortioner. They dare not say nay to any demand made upon them. And to hide at once, if possible, both their servility and their crimes, they attempt to divert public attention by crying out that they have abolished slavery, that they have saved the country, that they have preserved our glorious union, and that is and now paying the national debt, as they call it, as if the people themselves, all of them who ought to be taxed for its payment, had really and voluntarily joined in contracting it. They are simply maintaining the national honor. By maintaining the national honor, they mean simply that they themselves, open robbers and murderers, assume to be the nation, and will keep faith with those who lend them the money necessary to enable them to crush the great body of the people under their feet, and will faithfully appropriate from the proceeds of their future robberies and murders enough to pay all their loans, principal, and interest. The pretense that the abolition of slavery was either a motive or justification for the war is a fraud of the same character with that of maintaining the national honor. Who but such usurpers, robbers, and murderers as they ever established slavery? Or what government, except one resting upon the sword like the one we have now, was ever capable of maintaining slavery? And why do these men abolish slavery? Not from any love of liberty in general, not as an act of justice to the black man himself, but only as a war measure, and because they wanted his assistance and that of his friends in carrying on the war they had undertaken for maintaining and intensifying that political, commercial, and industrial slavery to which they have subjected the great body of the people, both white and black. And yet these impostors now cry out that they have abolished the chattel slavery of the black man, although that was not the motive of the war, as if they thought that they could thereby conceal, atone for, or justify that other slavery which they were fighting to perpetuate, and to render more rigorous and inexorable than it had ever been before. There was no difference of principle, but only of degree, between the slavery they boast they've abolished and the slavery they were fighting to preserve. For all restraints upon men's liberty, not necessary for the simple maintenance of justice, are of the nature of slavery, and differ from each other only in degree. If their object had really been to abolish slavery or maintain liberty or justice generally, they had only to say, All, whether white or black, who want the protection of this government shall have it, and all who do not want it will be left in peace, so long as they leave us in peace. Had they said this, slavery would necessarily have been abolished at once. The war would have been saved, and a thousand times noble union than we have ever had would have been the result. 
It would have been a voluntary union of free men, such a union as will one day exist among all men the world over, if the several nations, so-called, shall ever get rid of the usurpers, robbers, and murderers called governments that now plunder, enslave, and destroy them. Still another of the frauds of these men is that they are now establishing, and that the war was designed to establish, a government of consent. The only idea that they have ever manifested as to what is a government of consent is this, that is one to which everybody must consent or be shot. This idea was the dominant one on which the war was carried on, and it is the dominant one now that we have got what is called peace. Their pretenses that they have saved the country and preserved our glorious union are frauds like all the rest of their pretenses. By them they mean simply that they have subjugated and maintained their power over an unwilling people. This they call saving the country, as if an enslaved and subjugated people, or as if any people kept in subjection by the sword, as it is intended that all of us shall be hereafter, could be said to have any country. This, too, they call preserving our glorious union, as if there could be said to be any union, glorious or inglorious, that was not voluntary. Or as if there could be said to be any union between masters and slaves, between those who conquer and those who are subjugated. All these cries of having abolished slavery, of having saved the country, of having preserved the union, of establishing a government of consent, and of maintaining the national honor, are all gross, shameless, transparent cheats, so transparent that they ought to deceive no one when uttered as justifications for the war, or for the government that has succeeded the war, or for now compelling the people to pay for the cost of the war, or for compelling anybody to support a government that he does not want. The lesson taught by all these facts is this. As long as mankind continue to pay national debts, so-called, that is, so long as they are dupes and cowards as to pay for being cheated, plundered, enslaved, and murdered, so long there will be enough to lend them money for these purposes. And with that money, a plenty of tools, called soldiers, can be hired to keep them in subjection. But when they refuse any longer to pay for thus being cheated, plundered, enslaved, and murdered, they will cease to have cheats and usurpers and robbers and murderers and blood money loanmongers for masters. By Sanders Spooner's No Treason, the Constitution of No Authority. Appendix. Inasmuch as the Constitution was never signed nor agreed to by anybody as a contract, and therefore never bound to anybody, and is now binding upon nobody, and is, moreover, such an one as no people can ever hereafter be expected to consent to, except as they may be forced to do so at the point of the bayonet, it is perhaps of no importance what its true legal meaning as a contract is. Nevertheless, the writer thinks it proper to say that, in his opinion, the Constitution is no such instrument as it has generally been assumed to be, but that by false interpretations and naked usurpations, the government has been made in practice a very widely and almost wholly different thing from what the Constitution itself purports to authorize. He has heretofore written much, and could write much more, to prove that such is the truth. But whether the Constitution really be one thing or another, this much is certain that it has either authorized such a government as we have had or it has been powerless to prevent it. In either case, it is unfit to exist. I hope you enjoyed this reading of Lysander Spooner's No Trees in the Constitution of No Authority by me, Mark Stevens, the author of Adventures in Legal Land, where black is white and white is black and other shocking discoveries from America's courtrooms. Make sure to visit adventuresinlegalland.com today. The Declaration of Independence a public domain recording for LibriVox.org, read by Jim Cadwell. The Declaration of Independence of the Thirteen Colonies, in Congress, July 4, 1776. The Unanimous Declaration of the Thirteen United States of America. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.